All right. Well, hello there. Uh, my name is Noah Adam, and uh, we got a winner tonight, baby. We got a winner tonight. Uh, why, you ask? Because we have just watched uh, Darren Aronofsky's Heroin Happy Hour, starting uh, 30 Seconds to the Joker, Marlon Wayans, a whole host of folks are in this. There's drugs, there's dreams of getting on game shows, there's the stumbling through the day-to-day -day gravitas of what is ultimately an unfulfilled life. I mean, we basically just call this Aronofskyanism at this point. Like, I'm coining that now, Aronofskyanism. Don't use it. Um, so if you are new to this podcast, what we do here is each of our co-hosts selects a film every week, every other week, something like that. Uh, a good quality horror film, not like The Shark Exorcist, or let's say The Curse of La Llorona, movies like that. Like we pick good horror films, we select them, and all the other co-hosts gives uh, their thoughts about the film. We muse about the deep-seated fear that each co-host has with each film they select. And this week is Re Requiem for a Dream, which to, in my mind can only mean that Shara is scared of being on television shows. That's my interpretation. That's what I got from this. Uh, it's not about drugs. It's not about losing oneself to substance for Shayra. She probably saw an episode of Price is Right or Tony Robbins when she was younger and paired it with some traumatic event that happened to her. And that makes sense. I, Shayra, I don't know if you remember this, a couple years ago, you visited my wife and I in Dallas uh, and I showed her uh, my new Prius. I walked her into the garage, opened the door and I, I must've just said it the wrong way. I said, a new car. And she just fell to the ground and like fainted, curled up into a ball. And I, I never understood why. Now I know why. Now I know why. Uh, so Requiem for a Dream. Requiem for a Dream um, is about a retired widow, Sarah Goldfarb, living in a small apartment. She spends most of her time watching TV, uh, especially a, a particular self-help show. She has delusions of rising above her current dull existence by being a guest on that show. And her son, Harry, is a junkie along with his uh, friend, Tyrone. And they both have visions of making it big by becoming drug dealers. Uh, Harry's girlfriend, Marion, uh, could be a fashion designer or an artist if she wanted to, but she's swept along in Harry's drug-centric world. Meanwhile, Sarah Goldfarb has developed an addiction of her own. She desperately wants to lose weight, to be on the show, fit into a red dress. And so she uh, goes on a crash course uh, diet, essentially involving like pill popping, uh, pills that turn out to be very addictive and harmful to her mental state. So a lot of stuff happening here. Um, so, you know, to me, this movie is horrifying in a very particular way. I think it pushes the boundaries of what we characterize as a horror film on this podcast, right? This is very, this is far from anything like a traditional horror film, although I think it, it, it certainly can inflict terror in a certain kind of person. And it's a lot like how Jonah was terrified of the film The Lobster, right? I think this movie... Is, is similar in that sense. It hits a very specific sort of fear, I think. Um, one that we'll probably explore, or a couple that we'll probably explore tonight. Um, so with that said, I, I just, I'll throw it over to you, Shara. Um, you know, what, just kind of want to know why this movie scared you so much. I mean, besides Joe Piscopo and the game show, clearly that was the main thing that scared you. But other than that, why did you select this film to discuss tonight? Uh, before I go into that, um, you know how we always try to find a parallel from the choices we pick I've, I've i'm starting to see a pattern with me in some of these movies because with donnie darko we had uh an over exuberant type guy trying to teach you how to life better and make you have a better fulfilled life i mean it's in both of these films it's this smarmy game show host type monster that's giving you bullshit advice and and telling you how to life better when they're probably just complete shit on the inside 
and they're really just trying to market off of you and see you as a big dollar bill. So I, I think I'm starting to realize that might be part of my fear is these self-help gurus <laughs> apparently are scary to me. Um, or maybe quick answers, you know, like easy answers to complex questions. You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe like that. that is it too. Cause I really do get freaked out when people are like, here's your solution. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's, that's not what this is about. But honestly, that's what makes this film so important to me. Um, so like a lot of people mention the drug use, but the title in and of itself is the part that's frightening, right? The, the requiem, like almost like rest in peace, all of your dreams, all of your hopes, they're all fucking shit. You need to set real life goals and not follow these self-help gurus or uh, have this pie in the sky kind of mentality about life. Because if you do, it'll send you down a self-destructive path and lead to addiction and just completely getting you cut off and alone from your network of peer and family. So um, it, that the reason why that freaked me out so much when I first watched it in the year 2000 is that was the epitome of all the garbage we were forced down our throat in the 90s, right? You, you, you live in this world where everybody's like, follow your dreams. Anyone can be president. I'm really mad that that was uh, something everybody said, honestly. But, but like they had this like crazy, like happy, happy kind of mentality. And um, you actually saw this with the MTV culture of the 90s where people started actually getting grossed out and horrified by these messages. This is not good messaging. We need to have real life goals and real life uh, ideas. And you really feel this in the film when uh, when Harry is showing this really great way that they can have it, make it big. Here's a store. Here's all this beautiful things we can do. We're going to build our life up. Everything's going great. And this is the part of the movie where usually people are going through the struggle before they get to the good. This movie has the happy stuff going on in the middle where the tension's supposed to be. And you have scary music playing when they're following their dreams. This really eerie, which, oh my gosh, we definitely have to talk about the music in this film. But this really eerie, horrible, horrifying music playing when people are following their dreams and saying, we can make it big. We're going to live happily ever after. Everything's going to be great. That's horrifying because not life doesn't always work that way. Oh, yes. And thank you, Jim. You mentioned that. Uh, Tom Cruise in Magnolia. That also is a very horrifying, but one of my favorite scenes in a movie, by the way, the, the incel with the ponytail <laughs> telling everybody how to get the ladies. <laughs> you were mentioning uh, self-help books and uh, one of the most uh, effective portrayals of that for me is Tom Cruise in Magnolia where, uh, yeah, that's uh, all sort of based upon that. Um, there was a self-help book called The Game that came out um, about con contemporaneous with uh, these films and uh, Magnolia as well. And that uh, that portrayal is particularly eerie. And as you were comparing it to, as you were talking about those those self-help people with all the easy answers, that was the first thing that, that came to mind. Uh, one comment in the chat that, I mean, we're already getting, um, great stuff in the chat. One of them was uh, one lesson I've learned. If someone wants money, they don't want what's best for you. And that's absolutely true. Um, and it's shown in both this movie and in Magnolia as well. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's an interesting element. I think the, the drug stuff about this film is um, so overwhelming and uh, so 
uh, <clears throat> so front and center of what people remember about this film, then I think you're right to sort of draw our attention to the other elements as well, um, that it's not just drugs that propel these people along their, their journeys, it's, it's their dreams. Um, and one of the things that I remembered about this film, I rewatched it for the podcast, and I had seen it um, right when it first came out, when, when Ellen Burstyn was nominated for the Oscar, and uh, I deservedly so. And uh, if you sort of look back on Aaron Brockovich, Aaron Brockovich versus Requiem for a Dream, and you go, which one is the better performance? Uh, clearly, I think the Academy got it wrong by giving it to Julia Roberts. They're here nor there. The thing we, the thing I remembered about this film is clearly the drug stuff. But I also think that one of the things that um, I learned from this film about storytelling was do the hope parts well in order to make the sad parts better. Um, if you don't get the hope and the optimism and the dreams, if you don't make those as effective as the terrifying sections of the film, then uh, the terrifying sections will be less uh, effective and less um, uh, heart-wrenching at the end. Yeah, I, I, oh, sorry. I don't really know to step over, but yeah, that is actually one of the reasons why this movie works so well for me, uh, is because the happy moments, you really were like cheering for these people. Even if they weren't the greatest people, you're cheering for them. And then, you know, there's been arguments about how tragic the ending is and and how it's too much. But I think it was perfect because most movies uh, will have a, a huge amount of conflict and problems in the center. And then this like overly done happy ending, especially like if you watch the Lifetime original movies and like the Hallmark movies, this it's really like overly intense tension in the center and then this way overly too happy ending. This did the exact opposite. And I think that was really clever, honestly. So um, the, the contrast is what helps <laughs> for me to like really, it, it, it makes it hit you, right? Um, right. And he's also, Aronofsky is also really clever about the way he uses those happy parts too. Like we don't need a montage of Jared Leto and Jennifer Connelly smiling by the beach in order to, I mean, we just get that one shot of the, of the beach scene, but we don't need like this sort of um, moment where we flash back on all the happy memories at the end of the film in order to, um, in order to make the ending effective. We, he trusts his audience to remember that they felt hope for these characters um, in the beginning and middle of the film in order to, and, and he trusts the audience enough um, and that makes the, the, the ending far more effective. The, the scariest part of this entire movie for me was the scene when Sarah says, it's a reason to get up in the morning, it's a reason to lose weight it's a reason to fit in the red dress it was like i had heard i mean i the first time i saw this movie was last night and i'd heard about it for years i just i'd heard the song a million times uh, the requiem for a dream soundtrack like a million times and i just on youtube and in, in fmv videos you just you hear it everywhere right like in our age but i was like i'd never seen a movie and i watched it thinking that it was going to be primarily a PSA about not doing drugs, but it's so much deeper than that. You know, um, I, it, it's sort of, um, 
it was really about, uh, for me, I think like the shattering of, um, the shattering of dreams and, and expectation. It's a very American film in a lot of ways. It's kind of a study on the human condition, sort of the need for fulfillment and, and being isolated in the search for it. it there, there's so much, like drugs is a plot device, a very clear plot device. I think there's, there's drug stuff in this that's important that we can take away, but it felt like there's another layer and I didn't expect that. I really didn't know, like I didn't read anything about this movie. I just heard drugs, 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 drugs. I um, was able to get a copy of the NC-17 version, which now I know what makes it NC-17 and what doesn't, we'll talk about that later. Um, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, I uh, I don't know. I, I have a quote from Aronofsky actually, um, let me see if I can find it, where he kind of talks a little bit. Well, he says, so he says, Requiem for a Dream is not, says it explicitly. It's not about heroin or about drugs. Uh, he says that Harry Tyrone Marion's story is a very traditional heroin story, but putting it side by side with the Sarah story, right, Sarah Goldfarb, we suddenly say, oh my God, what is a drug? Like, that's part of the important part. Like, what is a drug? Um, our need for that, our need for that fix. Right? That fix can be a very different thing for very different people. And it's so much more deeper. There's something missing, I think, for a lot of people. And there's this is a story about their search for it, that ideal sort of idealization of success in a very particular sort of way. Um, very interesting. Uh, I did not expect that watching this. I thought that this would be, this would make me just not want to do drugs. And that was like sort of the the end of it and it was so much more than that so anyway i thought i'd throw that out there. well i mean they they yeah, explicitly no, I... say this too when they're on the beach when harry's on the beach uh with marion um he said he's gonna finally make it up to his mom because he's been a shitty fucking son for so long and he says that he's going to get her what gives her her fix mm. and he basically talks about television as being her drug and and it's so very clear in that writing what their intention is here it's not to be about drug use per se it's to explain to the world that addiction can come in all different kinds of manifestations not just from drugs and alcohol drugs and alcohol are something we get to you know attack others for because that's the one that throughout the 90s we were inundated with drugs are bad okay <laughs> you know we have we have uh Jesse Spano and Saved by the Bell with her, I'm so excited, I'm so scared, in her caffeine addiction. Um, you have uh, the the presidents who were saying stuff like crack is whack. You have- Just uh, say no. <laughs> just that. say yeah, no. Just the say care no. programs were in full effect in the 90s. I mean, we the, the, the PSAs that were constantly playing of this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? I mean, we are constantly- given these commercials telling us drugs are so horribly bad. Um, and this was his way of saying, hey, you are all addicted to something. All of you. <laughs> and you can right. get obsessed with them too much. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair point. Um, the, when I get a little, I, I think that, I think it's a little bit muddled though, right? Because, um, if she was, if the, in construction of the film, if instead of having her get addicted to an actual drug, she was fully just addicted to television or she got addicted to running or she got addicted to something else that's not obviously actually a drug. I think that would have made the same point, but made it even more palpable um, because I think what's what's really powerful about what all you are what you're saying 
is that anything can become a drug. It doesn't have to be heroin, alcohol, cigarettes, uh, pills, blah, blah, blah. Like literally anything in your life, even your own dreams and even your own ambitions can become a drug. That's a really powerful statement, yet it's undercut by the fact that she gets addicted to a literal drug. Um, so I would like... I, I almost wish that I could take the pills out of this movie in order to, and, and still have a very similar movie, if not the same movie. Um, yeah, but I think the pills were put in mainly because of the product of its time. Uh, we were coming from a time where everybody trusted their doctors to know what to give them. And, and this idea that if it's a prescription drug, it's not a drug drug. Um, and that was a message that was super necessary in 2000 and is even more pertinent today. Uh, there are so many people given prescriptions to drugs and they are like, oh, no, but it's from a doctor. So that's not a drug drug. And she even argues that in there. So Absolutely. I get why they put it in there. But yeah, you're right. Like it it there are a lot of different things that they were addicted to, you know, and but all of them had a drug problem. <laughs> that, exactly. Yeah, that I, was something they all had in common. Yeah, I I am not disputing any of the sort of uh, the the theses behind anything you're saying. I'm just uh, suggesting that as a film, perhaps it would have been more effective without the pills. Um, for me, if it's not more effective for you than that, but I understand why the pills are in there. And we that wouldn't have the line. Are you on Upasma? <laughs> I'm laughing a lot. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I learned it by watching you, son. I learned it by watching you. <laughs> so I agree with everything that Sherrod just said about that. I um, But I think there's also kind of like another layer to that too that I sort of saw. And I think that it maybe it actually kind of needed to be pills just to draw a parallel here that uh, I don't think we've mentioned just yet. And that parallel would be that... Um, this Tabby Tibbins guy, this this game show host, I think is to Sarah what Harry is to Marion, right? So like there's there's a really strong parallel there between those two relationships. Um, whereas Tabby and Harry are are or Tappy, excuse me, Tappy, um, are both selling this idea, right? So like obviously in the TV example, it's very clear. He has this game show, he's selling millions of people this idea of like this sort of like glorious, whatever it is, lifestyle. He's selling his own lifestyle. He's selling quick answers. But Harry is kind of doing the same thing, right? So like in the middle of sort of the movie here, we kind of see him going to Marion and saying, you know, hey, you like design. You want to do this? Do you want to have your own shop? You should do this. This thing would be awesome. But to get there, here's the quick answer. I have to get these drugs. I have to sell this. I have to come up with this scheme to make this happen for you. And she totally buys into it, right? And for her, I think just like it does with Sarah, it becomes her ultimate downfall. Whereas with Sarah, she gets addicted to the uppers. She goes insane worrying about this event that's going to happen. She clearly experiences psychosis and then gets thrown into a mental hospital. Whereas, of course, with Marion, the path is a little bit different. So after being sold this idea for so long and getting so deep into her addiction, she ends up completely separating herself from Harry and literally selling her body to get this fix that becomes the replacement for her dream. Yeah, so you're 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 totally right. That's a good point. It's self worth, right? When you when you say that uh, this this guy is to Sarah what uh, uh, Harry is to Marion, it's in the context of self worth. I think uh, of 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 being something, of, of being recognized. Like I think Marion has obviously. Um, so what does she say? She says, "You make me feel beautiful." Like a lot of people have said, "I'm beautiful," but she says to Harry, "You make me feel beautiful." Um, you know. Uh, uh, 
Sarah is, it's a reason to get up in the morning. It's a reason to lose weight. It's a reason to fit in the red dress. I think it all comes down between them to be a, a thing of self-worth. And it just continuing on that, on that note, um, Tyrone, his thing is his mom, right? Like I, I told you, mom, one day I'll make it. So there's, there's this entire outer layer that drugs seem to feed into, but they're not central. And I totally, totally agree with Jim that taking the drugs out specifically for Sarah would have underscored the point that the film I think is trying us to swallow, no pun intended, uh, much, much better, um, much better. But uh, so if there is any flaw in this film that I, 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 I just offhand that I see, it's, it's that. I do also get that the context was very late 90s where you trusted your doctor, so I get that too. This is very interesting. Um, but yeah, um, anyway, sorry, thought I'd throw that in there. Yeah, I, I do see that there was a scene where Marion, uh, she does have issues with self-worth as Sarah does. And you actually see when she is in front of the mirror uh, and she just has a, a little sports bra on and she's staring at herself and she's like slumped over, almost like the before picture in an ad, you know, slumped over and just insecure and sad. And she takes some drugs real quick and then she's beautiful. Look how gorgeous I am in the mirror as like an after. And the thing is, nothing changed. Nothing changed except for the drug use. But it wasn't the drugs making her necessarily feel beautiful. It was her stance and it gave her the confidence she needed. It was like a, a boost of confidence that she needed to help her get over her own insecurities. I mean, I get that it was the drugs that were helping out a little bit. But you know what I mean? Like she needed to get over her insecurities by cutting off a voice in her head. And you see the characters consistently cutting things out by the use of drugs. Like when Harry's laying on the couch watching ads, of course, all night long, the shopping network. I know that, I don't know if that's even a thing anymore, but uh, he's watching a shopping network and he keeps seeing her fucking some old ugly dude. And uh, he takes some drugs and it just kind of disappears. <laughs> and back to the home shopping network um it, it it's a device for erasing certain feelings like even when he leaves his mom and finds out that she's on those drugs he takes some drugs he goes from crying in the cab to chill as fuck it's like this erasure of certain feelings it's not even necessarily to have fun or party or to have those good feels anymore it's literally to erase just little problems in their life um and that is not a kind of codependency you want with anything it drugs or whatever like if you are let's say you're addicted to video games and every time you start to feel bad you just go to play video games uh just so you can escape that's probably not the healthiest way to deal with all of your issues if that's what you continuously do so i mean yeah they use drugs as a, a way of saying it but you could honestly insert anything <laughs> as a escape or an erasure of problems that you have with yourself or with whatever you're going through. Yeah, and I mean, let's let's not uh, let's not uh, uh, you know let's not uh, try to take away the point too much. I mean, we are a society in the United States, especially we're we're inundated with drug addiction. I mean, it, it, this is definitely a part of the film that, although there's this other layer, this is certainly something that I think is is uh, is integral uh, to the film. I, I think that the numbingness, the need to escape. Uh, to fix. And it's that fix part that I think is kind of a door into the deeper conversations of this movie. Fix what? Like fix the, the one's alienation, the idea of oneself. 
Um, you know, I think there's other topics. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you guys too is what what uh, role consumption plays in this movie? Like there's kind of a, a consumption component to all of the characters where they need to consume in order to get what they need. It, it's, there's no stoicism. There's no, um, how do I put it? There's no, it, the, 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 the key to fixing whatever ails them is more of X, right? consumption, uh, which is an authentically American, <laughs> especially in 2019, authentically American uh, idea. But uh, yeah, that navigation into fixing um, is is sort of precipitated by conversations of numbing oneself, of, of seeing an issue and wanting to erase the issue. Um, I think, I mean, that's what drugs do, right? Like that's, that's, uh, that's, the, that's the point of them in a lot of ways for a lot of people. Um, yeah, uh, what was it? There was a quote from um, a philosopher at Duke. I uh, used to listen to this uh, this old old ass YouTube channel that had um, it's like the uh, teaching the teaching channel or something like. Oh, they used to have old philosophers talk about issues and stuff. There's 1980s, and I watched this one philosopher, Rick Roderick, and he said that we're such materialists here in the West that the opium for the masses is no longer religion in the United States. It's opium, like the opium of the masses is opium. Right. I, I, that's, and that was in 87 or something, 88. And I, it always stuck with me that phrase, um, because it's, you know, it, this is a problem for us. We, we quick fix. If that's under, if that's what's behind it, that's interesting. But I, you know, this is something we sort of all do to, uh, to larger or smaller extents to not feel a certain way to have, be a, so, you know, I'm sitting here having a, a really, really heavy beer and it's somewhat of a social lubricant in a lot of ways, but you know, you can see how that could easily become an agent to fix maybe social things that I don't have going for me very well, or, you know, it, it can become something that becomes dependent for a lot of people. And the question is never asked in this movie, like why, by the characters, like, why are these things happening? I feel like there's moments of introspection in this movie too, but like the behind the scenes stuff is never really addressed. I mean, you can see moments between Marion and Harry where they just look at each other while they're going through withdrawal. And there's, I was waiting for that moment of this is beyond us. We, we got to fix this. This is like, we're more than this. Uh, or I don't want you to do this. Right. But that's the insidious nature. I think of addiction is if it gets to the point of withdrawal, especially for heroin, um, which I believe can kill you. Heroin withdrawal can actually kill you. Um, that it's go out like prostitute yourself i love you but guy we this we need this you know i i don't i want to get too personal with this but i've i've heard overheard conversations when i was young with my parents who were both drug addicted um that were similar to this uh my dad would finally get money and instead of going to the grocery store i heard him say to my mom you know i need i need this i, I just have to go out and get this um and it's amazing that that can overtake not just utility not just like i have kids i have a wife i have a, I have a home i have responsibilities um it can be all consuming, you know? So while I think I wanna sort of see what's underneath the drug stuff, I also wanna underscore the importance of the drug stuff, I guess, you know, cause I, I think in our day and age, especially with opioids and all that, um, it's definitely still an insidious issue, you know? So anyway, sorry, I'm rambling at this point. So I, I think I got something for this. Um, there's a philosopher that I wanna quote too, uh, named Hunter S. Thompson, who once said, uh, he who makes a beast of himself gets rid of the pain of being a man. and you know, it's a little bit tongue in cheek here, obviously, um, thinking back to um, fear and loathing and all that. But I, I do think it kind of ties in here at the, the critical point that I see in this movie. And that's going to be um, 
uh, Sarah's speech. Like, no, you've mentioned it a couple times now. And I think that's really the key to unlocking this movie. And I think that's a fantastic device, right? Like there's, there's some movies and some books that do this really well, where there's, there's one scene or like a few lines that sort of underscore kind of like an analogy that becomes the entire book. And I think that speech that she gives is, is that case for this movie. And what, what that tells me is that there is this existential dread in this movie that is sort of there as the backdrop, I think, for everything else that happens. And it speaks to, I think, an element of the human condition where we all kind of have that need. Um, and I think the fix for us in the face of all the stresses and trials and tribulations and stuff and essentially the pain of existence um, is meaning. And we all sort of crave that. We all kind of like go after different things to try and fill that place inside of us to find meaning in life, whether it's there or not. Um, a lot of us sort of go after a lot of very superficial things to try and find that. Um, and I think really the, the lesson in this movie is that it can be found mostly, I think. And like, this is the answer that comes from a lot of sources, right? Like we all go back to, it's really about the relationships that we make and sort of the deeper connections we make with other people seems to be that consistent way to sort of solve that problem. But people have this this common folly where they'll they'll sacrifice that in the name of something that seems faster more expedient more superficial whether it's consumption whether it's some sort of like superficial dream like looking a certain way whether it's a drug um and that's kind of like where we have our downfall is in moving past the thing that really i think has the potential to give us that long lasting fix for something that's just going to completely fuck us up in the long run yeah, I this you, you've hit it. I mean, I, I think a lot of this does come down to like the an, an insanely fundamental search for finding one's place in the universe, right? Like I, I especially I think some of us in this podcast used to be religious and no longer are. I think we, we there, that's a world we've navigated. I, I I can speak for myself. I know Shay would probably been. I like we. This is. This is an important thing. I mean, we all search for meaning. Everybody that's that's if you if you're not looking for it, I don't think you're playing the game right. But at the same time, it's a really dangerous game in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, this is definitely, I think, uh, a, a huge part of this. Um, the needful fulfillment. I mean, and I always for me, it's a struggle for me because I, you know, I hear people say it always comes down to relationships. And those are the things that are the most. What does Daniel say? My wife has a saying. It's like. Um, uh, experiences, not things like people, not things like whenever you have the opportunity to spend money on something, try to always bring it back to an experience, um, not a thing that if you can help it to do things with people. And that's really helped me. I tend to be very isolationary. Um, but uh, especially coming from a religious apparatus that I no longer have, that's been very useful to me uh, to look at the world that way and to try and find it that way. But I get how one can fall into this. It seems um, Finding finding meaning in a capital M meaningless universe, if that's the way you understand the world, can be a fairly difficult thing to do. Um, and it's easy to just, you know, uh, put a needle in your arm to take away, you know, some of the pain when uh, when life gets difficult. But um, anyway, yeah, I, I had a lot of empathy watching this. I just I felt like uh, like I, you can see the the need for stoicism, the need for an acceptance of one's place. Uh, reality, like you can see all of that in there, but if you, at the same time, I, I felt very forgiving for these characters, watching them be in the state that they're in. Um, and I wanted to really quickly just go back to what was said at the beginning about the time, like I wanna underscore in this film, the time invested in setting up the dreams of the characters. 
Um, this movie started out somewhat optimistically, which I thought was weird. Like I think Shayra said, it's it's as you go through this movie where things get like just way worse. It's right in the middle where things are the best, which is that's a perfect way to do a film like this. I think, um, you know, it's that removal and that shattering of fantasy. Um, anyway, I have like so many thoughts going through my head. I'm going to let you guys sort of take over and, and pick which way to go. But it's a lot of very deep seated, um, very large existential questions in this movie, which is really funny because those we sort of pick those films, I think, that have stuff like this in it. But this one sort of is very American. It's very us. It's very, no pun intended, because that's our next film next week. It's very, it's very authentic and apt even 20 years later. Um, anyway, so yeah, that yeah, I go that I want to, well, I want to pick up on a few points. Um, the first is I really like uh, your wife's and uh, um, choose experiences over things. I think that's a really kind of, I, I like that as as a uh, as a budgetary um, guideline as I'm making up my budget for for months. Um, it should be <laughs> it should be noted that when I do my budget, I have a spreadsheet, and you know I got food and gas and mortgage and all of those, and then for entertainment expenses instead of entertainment expenses, I just write hookers and blow, and that's <laughs> uh, the the line item for all my entertainment expenses. Um, but uh, yeah, so there's I, I I like that, but I want to put this film in brief conversation with uh, a film that we've also done on the podcast, Bug, um, which explicitly states that people can become addictions too that relationships and can become addictions as well. So there's really no, um, and I like Ben, ben suggests column Y, expensive bourbon. So um, <laughs> we're adding columns to my spreadsheet. Uh, yeah, but let's, let's go going back to the point. People can become addictions, relationships can become addictions in codependent and very upsetting ways. And I think that one of the things that I find interesting about Requiem for a Dream and Bug and other films that deal with this kind of um, plugging the god hole with uh, ill-fitting means. Um, all of those films, their characters lack a certain degree of self-reflection. They lack a certain degree of going, oh wait, what am I doing? What have I come to? What's going on? I, I mean, even yeah. these characters kind of seem to, as they are declining um, in the uh, the latter half of the second act and and the third act, um, as they're they're declining, they never stop to think, "What have I become? What are we doing? Yeah. How is this? How is this? Uh, uh, how is this in line with, or not in line with, rather?" the plans that we set up in the beginning of the second act and the first act of this movie. Um, those are the type of, so for me, it becomes, instead of choosing experience, not things, choosing um, people, not things, choosing relationships, not things, making sure that before I'm making a decision and making a decision based upon a self-reflective and sometimes paralyzingly so self-reflective, uh, self-reflective process. Um, I, but it sort of thrown onto all of this is a, since everybody is quoting their favorite, favorite philosophers today, I'll, uh, quote David Foster Wallace, who says, 
um, and I don't have the quote in front of me, but I'm paraphrasing, um, in the day-to-day -day trenches of ex adult existence, there are no such thing as atheists. We all worship. The only thing that we have the choice about is what to worship. And we can choose sort of a, as he says, JC or Allah or Wiccan mother goddess, you know, sort of listing dogmatic religions. Um, we could choose those, or we also have a society that is um, pushing us toward the worship of consumption. Mm -hmm. And either any one of those can overtake your life to the point where you are no longer a critical reflective thinker. And that's that's one of that's one of the really effective elements of this film for me. Go ahead, Noel. Do, I was just gonna ask, do you think that that's the key out? The, I mean, if we add relationships to the addiction pool, do you mm -hmm. think do you think the way out of this is something like reflecting on one's state honestly? Yes, but even then, it's not a foolproof method because yeah. you can become paralyzed with self-reflection. You can become paralyzed to the point where you're not even making a decision. You're just sitting here thinking about all of the decisions that you can make. Um, and you can become your own, uh, your own self-reflection can become a matter of worship itself. For, so for me, there's actually, this is one of those things that makes life shitty. Um, which is an even longer spreadsheet. Uh, things that make life shitty are the <laughs> fact that anything can become in and of itself a uh, a paralyzing or addictive quality. Even self-reflection can become paralyzing or self-reflect uh, or paralyzing or or addictive. Um, so for me, there's no real, no easy way out, no real out of the uh, the perils of addiction. Well, I thought we couldn't make Aronofsky's film any more horrifying, but thank you, Jim. I appreciate that. That's uh... yeah, happy to help. Um, now I'm going to smoke my cigarette and drink my beer. <laughs> uh, they're all laughing silently. <laughs> the, the mics are muted. So. <laughs> Sorry, I'm kind of glad it didn't actually say my first laugh because I was laughing really loud. It probably would have hurt your heads. That was beautiful. Uh, you, you know, the thing is, this film, it's been fucking with me for almost 20 years now. This has been a constant, like, stabbing thing. It always, th there's times where I just, like, think back at certain moments. There's times where I'm, I'm sitting on the couch thinking, I need some food. I should probably eat something healthy. And then I look over at the fridge and I see the monster <laughs> fridge from this movie, like, gonna come and attack me, you know? But it, it's, this movie is also a positive film for me, even though I hear a lot of people say, oh, this is a tragic, horrible film. It makes me feel horrible. I'll never watch it again. I, I hear that all the time from people. I will never watch that movie again. It's so horrible. It makes me happy because it tells me that I'm doing the right thing in not living in this like fantasy world of I'm going to be this great person forever. But I mean, the other thing is my everyday life, I have these choices that I need to make and I can make educated choices about what I'm going to eat or what I'm going to do with my life, or I can just do whatever makes me feel good. And this film explains why I probably shouldn't just do whatever makes me feel good. And we come from a culture here in America, at least, where we try to just do whatever makes us feel good. 
And we even have as part of our, what our country was founded on is the pursuit of happiness. And uh, whenever we go to our religious institutions or even go to school, they're like, what is your purpose? What are you going to be when you grow up? I still don't know what I'm going to be when I grow up. Okay. <laughs> like, leave me the fuck alone. Um, it, it, this idea that we have to get to this goal. And when we get to that goal, that's the ultimate success. That's the ultimate us. That's the perfect us. It's bullshit. Because uh, we know now that so many people who have pursued this thing, like, oh, I'm going to be extraordinarily rich and then I'll be happy. They get there. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. And it, it, there's no there's no magic combination of things that are going to make you feel successful or happy or beautiful or important or loved or whatever. Um, and and they, they do such a great way of juxtaposing that stuff with uh, the way that they edit the movie. Um, so you have this happen with the characters, but also with the issues that they deal with. You see this constant split screen. It, the, the first time we see the split screen is when uh, Harry comes into his mom's house to steal her TV and uh, she's in, locks herself away. It lets us know that when the split screen comes up, that's the separation, right? But even in the scenes where you see them cuddling up, they're all naked and touching each other and in love. You see their mouths and it's all sexual, but there's a separation between the two of them. They're two of them, but you see like the arm is like two different locations severed. You see that his hand gets severed when he's actually like loving on Marion, like almost like a, hey, this is gonna happen later, spoiler alert. Um, but uh, you know, it, it's this constant separation. They were never connected the way they thought they were. There was always a separation. They were always alone, even when they were together and so close. And um, it, to me, there's a positivity in that because maybe we shouldn't be in these toxic relationships, even if they feel good. Or maybe we shouldn't be in these toxic situations, even if they feel good for the time being. Um, it, it definitely is a, a PSA of not just drugs, but a lot of other toxic parts of our lives. Yeah, I mean, maybe... maybe oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Noah. I was just going to say, maybe we could say something like, you know, the split screen to me served as an informer of alienation. You know, the first scene, think of Harry. So Harry and Sarah are in the same scene. Um, and there's a split screen and she's in the, the closet and he's taking the TV. They're in the same room, but they're locked apart. That's all over this movie is being in the same room, but being separated. It's like the idea of consumption. I, I wouldn't even say consumption. The idea of having this obsession with the success, the thing, the fill in the blank, the Tony Robbins, um, is it puts you in an isolationary tank such that even when you're around people that sh you should be closest with, you're separate to some extent. It's, I need this to be who I authentically am, right? This is, I put in my notes, like I'm sitting here looking at this big, bold thing I wanted to just call out. I hate life coaches. I fucking hate, I live in Orange County, California. I know three life coaches that are acquaintances of my wife and I, and I just hope I never have to give them my thoughts on what I think about being a life coach. You know what Hopefully I mean? Hopefully they're it, not watching right now. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't really care. Honestly, I just, it's one of those things where it's, I, it's, it's the search for, you know, happiness in that sort of way is in a large part why you don't have it. It, 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 if you're searching for it to that degree, you're obsessed with the idea that you don't have it, that underpins it. 
that it's not in you already, that it's not a part of you. There's, it, it's just this really insidious, regressive circle of being obsessed with searching for something that you don't have. Um, you know, I, it really bugs me. And I think this film really underscored that. Um, if I only had this one thing, I would be happy. If I was only healthy, wealthy, or wise, I would be authentically happy. And what that does is it bubbleizes you. It makes you, you know, a, a, a bubbled person and you're, you're in your locked room let's say, you know, and you can't have the same relationships you have with other people when you're in that kind of a search, I think. Um, I don't know. There, there's something there with that. It just really, really bugs me. Um, well, I think you're you're drawing the same type of distinction that I think Shaver was drawing in, in her last, um, the, I don't know, discussion time she was talking. Uh, in, in Shaver's list, but she was... Uh, she was drawing, sorry, it seemed to be that she was drawing a distinction between hedonism and happiness. And likewise, I think you're drawing a distinction between transient sort of objectives, I guess, transient pleasures versus goals. You know, I think there's nothing yes. wrong with having a life goal, a thing that you wish to accomplish, of course. something that drives you forward. But that goal should be meaningful to you as a person and have some sort of uh, substantial effect upon either yourself or the world. And a being on a game show sort of doesn't rise to that that level. Same thing with uh, some of the things that Chera was talking about. Um, drugs are forms of hedonism. Um, the ice cream in the monster fridge, which I think one of our commenters called it one of the scariest... Uh, monsters in a horror movie I was <laughs> like oh shit that I never thought about that before but yeah like the ice cream in the monster fridge is a transient objective it's 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 a band-aid um rather than something that is actually a a substantive life goal the hard work of critical thinking and the hard work of life is determining the difference between what is hedonistic happy what is hedonism and what is happiness what is a transient objective and what is a life goal. Um, that's that's the type of stuff that uh, makes, th you know, added to the spreadsheet of things that make life shitty. That determination is really quite difficult. You know what really messes me up about this, this whole line of thinking though? It's two things. One is Wittgenstein and the other is Buddhism. Um, Okay, so first relationships, right? So going back to this thing, this, this topic about relationships, something that has consistently weighed on my mind for, for probably like five years now, ever since I've heard about this idea, is, is the thought that we have this barrier in our communication with other people that's, that's completely limited by the symbols we use to try and communicate complex internal states. There's really no way to, to honestly do that. Um, like obviously we have correlation, right? Like, so if I say Apple, like you hear something, an image comes into your head, um, but we really don't have any way to kind of guarantee the experience that the other person is having whenever I, whenever I say Apple to you, Jim, like I have no idea what that evokes inside. And like, then you say, oh yes. And then you start talking to me about Apple and then our ideas kind of like stay consistent because of our external reference points. But again, there's, there's really no reason to believe that what is going on on the inside for me and for you is, is aligned. And so it kind of makes these personal connections kind of impossible anyway. So even like when we're talking about Marion and Harry laying together and, and yes, like it was mentioned that 
they they never really had that connection anyway. I think there's there's a couple reasons for that. Firstly, because they're probably really just in love with the idea they told themselves about the other person that they were with, right? So like Marion was in love with Harry because of how the stimulus of Harry on the outside and the idea of Harry made her feel on the inside. And Harry was in love with Marion because of this vision that he had in this dream about this person and this like happy ending. But none of that necessarily really connects i think in like a, in, a, in in the true sense that people think it does so <laughs> right out of the gate i think all of that is just kind of like potentially um destroyed second the journey for for finding meaning um i think that you you, you said something really interesting jim and it's really about kind of like the the path and the pursuit right whenever someone's like on that particular journey, it's very hard to make those connections with other people. So the relationships part aside, um, I think that's I think that's a fantastic thought because whenever I think about Buddhism, there's this this line of thinking there and I can't like cite particular like scriptures or like any particular person, but it it's honestly this journey that we convince ourselves that we have to go on before we get to an end state that kind of like prolongs our separation from enlightenment. And if we're associating our meaning in life and our happiness with the journey, um, I think that's something that's always going to kind of like fall through. But the only reason I think that we we never kind of like get to the to the place where we we need to be like that end state is because we fall in love with that journey. We fall in love with the struggle. We fall in love with the process, and then we can never really accept or wrap our heads around what happens when we actually end the journey, and then we're there in that place of happiness and enlightenment. Right. So like we kind of like prolong it for ourselves indefinitely, which sort of cuts ourselves off from that end goal. Um, so really, on like a couple of fronts there, it, it sort of tells me that. And now I'm just kind of like pontificating, I guess. Like, and I really don't mean to ramble, but if it can't come from any external source, it can't come from the journey. It can't come from people who we'd never have any guarantee of ever being able to have a meaningful connection with. What it really comes from is something inside of yourself. And I think it just comes to a point where you kind of like have to be in a place with yourself that you're just sort of like deciding to be in this particular state of mind that you feel like things are meaningful. Um, and you don't make these things, these decisions that end up like hurting you or prolonging your suffering, you just kind of like accept that things are good. You know, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, it's, it's really about like what's going on on the inside, but that's an incredibly lonely experience and incredibly lonely thought. I talking about like the, the alienation in this movie shit. Yes. Like that speaks directly to the, the state I think of, of the reality of human existence. We're all kind of like that, no matter what we do whether or not we're addicted to heroin and we're chasing that, or we think we have meaningful relationships or we're on this journey where we're, we're going somewhere and we're pursuing this goal or whatever it is. It's all just the story we tell ourselves. Um, yeah. I don't know. Like, I don't mean to like get too like depressing or, or like ranty or, or whatever with that, but dude. shit, dude, like, I, I don't know. It, <laughs> this <laughs> unexpectedly I, enough, this movie actually speaks to this, this deeper struggle I have, I think with myself. So yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely a, a good pick. I don't know, but, but yeah, man, like there, there's a lot of stuff that digs up for me at least. <laughs> I think we're having an appropriately depressing discussion for an appropriately depressing movie. I mean, it's not like we would be walking into a discussion about Requiem for a Dream and then saying, oh yeah, this is how awesome things are. You know, and I know you said earlier, Shaver, that this movie kind of makes you happy. Um, and, you for know, the wrong reasons. I mean, honestly, it, it's it's a watching a, a train wreck and I'm like, oh, now I have the insight to not 
fuck up like this. I'm still going to fuck up like this. We all are very self-destructive at times and we all can get into ourselves too much. But there is a happy ending at the end. I know a lot of people try to say that the ending is absolutely tragic, but there is a happy ending at the end. No matter how alone you are, no matter what suffering you're going through, what does everybody do at the end? They all lay on the couch or the bed or the cot and they curl up into a fetal position and feel the pain and the suffering of living. We all are in this together. This amount of suck that we are inundated with every day, we all are there. We all wish we could maybe go back and fix some of the stupid fucked up shit we've done and that we could be young again in the fetal position, right? Or that we could have that time when we didn't know as much and couldn't, didn't need to worry so much about all the shit that we all went through just now. Maybe have a happier time that we could go back to. We are all in this fucked up shit. And as much as that is so sad and tragic, there's some happiness to that because we're all dealing with that together, even though we're alone suffering with it. Yeah, there's a there's a return to the womb aspect at the end of this movie and acceptance, uh, almost a stoicism, uh, uh, you know, and uh, so I agree with Shara that I, I think, you know, you can have an ending, we'll, we'll call it like a happy ending, but I think we all know it's a very depressing ending, but at the same time, it's an accepting ending, right? Like, that's the part I think that is, it, it's a, it may be a force acceptance, but a force acceptance of things is still an acceptance of things like to get there through a tough road, you're still there. You know. Except for Sarah, right? I yeah, mean, Sarah it, did not get picked, yeah, but she's older. Yeah, yeah, she's older, and she's still stuck in her dreams at the end. That was actually the tragic end for Sarah, and one of the reasons why her character is so yeah. fascinating. Yeah, literally, the last shot of the movie is Sarah hugging Harry, looking beautiful in the red dress with the red hair. With yeah, the, I think yeah, you're right. Yeah. I think I, I think Sarah's Sarah's kind of an exception for this. I Sarah, think with her, Sarah yeah. was a little trapped, but also her brain had just got zapped with electricity. Maybe she has some hope when she uh, wakes up. Right, but when we see Sarah in reality, she looks she looks like shit. She looks like uh, I mean, her hair has been shaved. She's dumb to the world. She's but kind it, of the, is the Sarah you see at the end worse off or better than the Sarah who's being attacked by a uh, refrigerator and taking pill? Like I, that—that that may answer how we view the end of this film. Which Sarah is worse off? It's all about perspective. Oh shit! Actually. I was supposed to answer that. No, it's <laughs> it's like that's going to be a perspective. Uh, uh, sorry, guys. Jim was being attacked by his refrigerator during that intermission. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, sure. Uh, but then the the question then is what is better dealing with the uh, because what you're putting up against what you're putting up against each other is Sarah being trying to struggle against monster refrigerator and the the and losing that struggle quite vividly or a Sarah who's just dumb to the world. Yeah. I mean, I mean, even in these fetal images, you're talking about the infantilization of adults and almost privileging the idea that, not privileging, but maybe um, to some degree extolling uh, infantilization over actual adulting. 
um, which is so millennial. Um, uh, yeah, that's one of the reasons why it's so perfect, right? It was made in 2000. It's 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 almost perfect because of that. So I, I think I think the distinction you're making may be wrong. Instead of adulting versus um, infantilism slash millennializing, I, I think maybe we could look at it like: Would you rather be goal oriented and delusional, or vegetative and fixed? to a certain degree. I mean, we could argue whether she's fixed, but um, I mean, she certainly is in terms of the problem that she's at. So that, I guess so that's how I'm- her dream. Yeah, that's that's how I'm posing the question, I guess. I don't know. I Yeah, I mean, I would, I would actually rather have the struggle because there's a chance that I can win against Monster Refrigerator. But, but, but that's hell. She's in hell. Like that's the hell of this movie. That's the- You want that's... the Monster Refrigerator. We have to get him one now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have monster in my refrigerator, but I don't have a monster refrigerator. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, mm, mm, yeah, I, mean, I mean, because like, remember, uh, I, I, this is one of the times when I wish Garrett was here because he, he talks about how one of his greatest fears is Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. Being stripped of the ability to have any cognitive thought and being stripped of the ability to, um, sort of wage the wars against monster refrigerator or or the the vicissitudes of life and uh that's a fear he and i share um and i find that to be i find it better to be equipped with those than to just completely numb myself with ect uh mm -hmm. yeah um I think that's I guess that's that's whole Garrett's whole fascination with the we must imagine Sisyphus happy thing, right? Like you yeah. you have this person pushing this boulder up a hill, but he finds meaning and happiness in the struggle. Um, it's sort of a I mean he's an existentialist and yeah. so, and uh, you know I guess we're kind of putting Buddhism and and existentialism up against each other in this film uh, because I get. The, the sort of surrendering oneself to the sufferings of life, cause it, calling suffering inevitable is a very Buddhist doctrine. Um, and then existentialism is, you know, life sucks, but try anyway. And uh, I, I think that when, if you sort of surrender yourself to, I think if when these characters surrender themselves to infantilization, they stop trying anyway, which makes them sort of the anti-existentialists, which is something that as a life theory, you can, we can debate the merits of, mm -hmm. um, but uh, for or, me, personally, I don't, I don't particularly agree with it. Go ahead. Sure. Or it could just be a reaction to being at the very bottom, which is usually when you start to go and get back up to the top. Um, you know, sometimes there's that reflective time where you're just like, oh God, I wish I hadn't gone through this. I really fucked up. Oh my gosh, how do I fix this? And then uh, the struggle out of the hole. Do you see this as a recenter? Like, I don't think that. Do you see this as a recentering at the end of these characters? Do you think that there's. I don't know what happens after. After the uh, action of the film? But, like, here's the thing I have met so many people from so many walks of life, and they have some fucked up stories about their past that they'll reveal to me because I have some weird voodoo that I do that people just start talking and they tell me everything and they're like, well, I've never told anybody that story. Yeah, I have that effect on people. Uh, and the thing is, is 
there are so many people who've struggled through shit. I'm like, how the fuck did you get through this? How the fuck did you get where you're at now? And it's not necessarily that they're, you know, billionaires or that they have like their own business or that their mom is so proud of them. It's just that they're alive and that they're like fine. <laughs> you know, that's really what the happy ending should be. It's not this being on top bullshit. It's, hey, everything's fine. I'm comfortable and everything's cool. Uh, that That is not necessarily happiness, but it's just being. And I don't know. I, I like that. I, I like that. I like that phrase in reference to this movie. It's just being. That's how this movie ends, I think. It's just being doesn't end super happy it doesn't end with all of their deaths it's it's just being and there you know we can argue whether the state especially i i want to say especially for tyrant i actually think he gets it the least but like we can argue whether it's net positive and net negative but there's a sense in which the fix the goal the product the fill in the blank is absent it's the shattering of fantasy the removal of that fantasy bringing them back to sort of a null state um that's something like, a, I mean, maybe that's the happiest ending you can get in a story like this, you know? That's my take. I'm not saying you have to have that take, too. <laughs> that's, I've, I don't know. I, a lot of people hey. think through the muckety-muck, and uh, sometimes the bottom is when, you know, it's actually when things get boring. <laughs> yeah, we have, we, have, we have a commenter who actually, who actually, Put this really well it may just be the case that uh, she says uh, lindsay allen says i like to think the end is just all the characters hit, like hitting rock bottom like maybe maybe it's as simple as that you know maybe it's a, maybe it's as simple as that i think she's right uh i think lindsay's right but um you know i'd sort of go a little bit further and and say that it's almost an irre irrecoverable uh rock bottom it's a it's a rock bottom that i don't think that this is the story that uh shayra is gonna say so harry how did you lose your arm and he's gonna tell you this story and then at the end he's gonna say but i'm all right now because i got this job working with children um like i don't think that that's uh you never know maybe he'll be the first person to try out a cool robotic arm thing that is like really cool and everybody's like ah oh, you have the cool robot arm i don't know you it's know? like i i think that what you're saying is a very good outlook to have about life. I think everything that you're saying is fantastic as we're relating it to real human people who are going through real struggles, who um, are battling addictions of all the various forms uh, within the context of this movie and the things that Darren Aronofsky wants us to take away from this film at the end. I don't think that you can spin it. And it, I don't think there's any positive spin that one can put on this. I think at the end, it's simply she is living in this fantasy world where everything is perfect and she's yeah, on the Sarah show. definitely is, yeah. is probably not going to be in the best place per se in her mind. And that is truly frightening. But she's not taking those drugs anymore. She's not wandering the cold, wintry streets. This is the Matrix. Dress. This is the Matrix. She's yeah. jacked into the Matrix. Right, she's not drinking the the slurp in the uh, in the in the in the ship. She's in the Matrix, believing what she wants to believe. You know, I guess that's how I look at it. She's but the uh, Matrix. 
like some people who hit rock bottom, they still continue to kind of stay in their delusional state. And honestly, I, I hate to go here and get super personal, but it makes me think of my mom. So very, 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 very much. <laughs> the, no, these, these things keep happening and the delusions are still there. You know, this, this constant dreaming of all these great things that are going to come with the world. And it's why, <laughs> why do you need all these crazy wild dreams? Why can't you just like, be cool with existing and being able to interact with the awesome people that are in your life, you know, and just be fine with that. Like, I think that Sarah's problem also is a, a huge problem with the disconnect that was the technological problem of that day too. Um, you know, you, you have your phone, you have your TV, you have your neighbors. That's, those are your social life. And you hope your son comes and visits you. Like today we have, right now we're hanging out. We're in all, all over the place. We're all over the country hanging out, talking. And there's other people in the chat hanging out, talking. I don't know that there's these, this is going to be a, a lonely problem anymore. Or does that make us more lonely? You know, we, we, can, we can argue that. But uh, I, don't, I don't think that my generation is going to experience the type of loneliness that Sarah did. I think she was the last of that generation that's going to experience that type of loneliness that kind of cut off from your family and friends um at least if she lived today she could check carrie's facebook status mm, and see what's going on you know can i just say that she had a bitchin sony crt i actually have one right there like that's a fat ass sony crt just want to throw that out there i'm a huge fan of the crts so i throw that out there sorry Hey, someone mentioned, uh, it may have been you, Ben, um, Hunter S. Thompson, and uh, this, this is kind of a weird segue. Do you guys know how much drugs Hunter S. Thompson did in a given day? Have you heard? I believe his... it was a lot. Okay, do you want me, do, do you guys know his daily drug routine? I'm going to read it to you if you don't know what it is on a standard Let's day. Let's okay. go. Okay. Yeah. Okay, ready? All right, 3 p.m., rise. So he gets up at 3 p.m. 3.05, Chivas Regal with morning papers, Dunhill cigarette. 3.45, cocaine. 3.50, another glass of Chivas, another Dunhill. 4.05, first cup of coffee, a Dunhill. 4.15, cocaine. 4.16, orange juice and a Dunhill. 4.30, cocaine. 4.54, cocaine. 5.05, cocaine. 5.11, coffee, another Dunhill. 5.30, more ice in the Chivas. 5.45, cocaine, 6 p.m., grass to take the edge off. Does that make sense? 7.05, Woody Creek Tavern for lunch. Heineken, two margaritas, two cheeseburgers, two orders of fries, a plate of tomatoes, coleslaw, a taco salad, a double, double order of onion rings, carrot cake, ice cream, a bean fritter, Dunhills, another Heineken, cocaine, and for the ride home, a snow cone, which is a glass of shredded ice over, over uh, Chivas, basically. Uh, 9 p.m. cocaine, 10 p.m. drops acid, 11 p.m. Char chartreuse, cocaine, grass, 11.30, cocaine, midnight, Hunter S. Thompson writes. That's when he begins to write. 12.05 to 6 a.m. chartreuse, cocaine, grass, chivas, coffee, Heineken's, clove cigarettes, grapefruit, Dunhill's, orange juice, and gin, uh, continuous pornographic movies. That's interesting. 6 a.m. in the hot tub with champagne, Dove bars, fettuccine Alfredo. 8 a.m. he takes a halcyon. 8.20 he's asleep. He did that. That was his daily routine for the most part. Sounds like Lots a of vitamin C. What was your joke? He got, he got a lot of vitamin C. <laughs> That's what I got. 
<laughs> oh wow okay yeah we were both going the same direction with that joke <laughs> oh man. that's crazy that's crazy that's well i actually i posted about this on my facebook status at one point because i had realized that so many old fucks who were known for their constant drug use are still fucking alive while all these health nut motherfuckers are dying off and i'm like what the hell dude like i i think there's some lies that were fed to me but like i know that drugs can kill like uh i had a very very close friend of mine and, and he was practically a brother i grew up with him i, I remember him since i was two and we actually lived in the same house at one point in time. So he's always been a brother to me. And I was on a live blog TV uh, when I got the call about him. And so everybody got to see my reaction to the death of someone who's been a brother to me my whole life uh, dying. But it, the thing is, it wasn't the drugs that killed him per se. He had been on meth most of his life. And he finally decided to find Jesus and clean up and just stop cold turkey. Mm-hmm. Boom. That well, that, well, that's crazy. That's cra did he did he pass from like just the amount of drug use over time? And when he stopped his body, I'm just, not necessarily yeah. sure exactly what did it. I know that he was at his grandmother's house. He yeah. was laying in bed and his heart just said, oh, wow. no. So the, re the reason I ask is I have a, a, a very, very similar story. My best friend, um, this was when I was a Christian apologist. Um, I was working at a plumbing shop as one of my first jobs. Uh, and I was an early apologist. I just started getting into a Christian apologetics and he was an atheist, but was raised religiously. So he kind of knew, I felt like he knew better whenever I would give him these like, you know, these natural, uh, you know, like a teleology arguments and Kalam arguments and stuff. And he had been off drugs for years. He did meth and he'd been off drugs for a long time. But at some point our conversations about God started weighing on him very heavily and started triggering these larger thoughts about life and heavy things. And um, he, couldn't stand the, these thoughts. I think they were a little too heavy. And so he, the first time he went back on and got high uh, on meth, yeah, he died. He died. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things, this goes back to, I think, um, the idea that, that life's really fucking difficult, that it's just the nature of it, regardless of where you are, is fucking hard. I mean, it is the people that are the most successful that off themselves the most that you read online. It's the, those that have the most money that have the most success. It's like, you know, it's more than just when you've made it to the top of the hill, there's nothing else. It's, it, it's the searching for something that may not be there. It, it's, I, it, there's something to that. And this movie made me really reflect on what that is. I, I don't have any definitive answer for it, but it made me think about that. It made me think about Part of the problem, I think, is the way in which we do the searching. It's maybe, you know, maybe this goes back to the, the struggle Ben was talking about a little bit, but it's, it's, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't in a lot of ways when you search for meaning in life. I mean, I felt very fulfilled at times and very unfulfilled at times when I was a Christian. I was given a narrative, a meta narrative about my place in the universe, right? And that did its trick, that gave me the fix I needed for a while. But at some point it didn't, and I had to sort of navigate outside of that and find that. And I can sort of see this in that in this movie. I, I see it in the way they talk, their language about their the next thing they need, the success, the excitement, sort of the manic states that you see them in towards the middle of the film. 
Um, there's there's something about the search for these larger things that if done a certain way can lead to one's shattering, one's demise and one's destruction. And that's a really devastating thought, you know, anyway. Yeah, it's life is not easy. There are no easy ways to meander through it. And yes, some people may live to be 115. And when you say, oh, how'd you, how'd you stay alive this long, grandma? Well, lots of drugs and alcohol. <laughs> I mean, you always have that, you know, story, right? And that's not true for everybody. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why 23andMe is so popular right now, right? Like, what what are the things that are going to kill me? Can I just go and have a binge and <laughs> go crazy for the rest of my life? Um, but then, you know, it's, it's, where's the fun in that, right? <laughs> like, you need to maybe have have that uh experience of what if what what is what is this and and they even go through this in in the film when marion and harry are on the roof and he manages to finagle the little device so that yeah. they can get on there but at when they leave she gets the cord and she goes hey living on the edge you know uh, in a way that that's a fix too right taking some risks that's a that's a fix seeing where you might go, seeing what might happen, seeing if you can make it through a hardship. They, and in a way, they kind of big struggle too, even though it's really fucked up, <laughs> you know? I don't know. Lots of things can be addictive, you know? Yeah, this is a very, this is a very existential and very, it it's a much, yeah, this is a much <laughs> deeper film than I, I realized it was going to be. Um, certainly you know, much deeper than don't do drugs, okay? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I hear all the time that that's what that mo this movie is. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, there's so many layers to it. And, um, you know, the, the, the main storyline and the reason why I think, uh, you know, Sarah Goldfarb was nominated for an Oscar, <laughs> why that character was. Ellen Burstyn, yeah. Yeah. She, her storyline was so important. Okay. So. And, and as YouTubers, we may even understand this even more so. Uh, this idea, oh, I, you know, I want to be able to show people that, you know, this is the good life. You know, I'm doing well. I have things to say to you. Everybody watch me. Um, and she just wanted to have that opportunity. She didn't want the prizes. She didn't want the prizes. She just wanted to be able to uh, inspire others the way she's been inspired by others. She wanted to be able to be the person who, who helped others. Um, but that ended up being her worst nightmare. And I'm sorry, the scene where she is sitting in her room, took a couple pills, and the people in the TV come out of the TV, and then they're taking away the set around her, and there's cameras in her face. That is one of the most horrific scenes I've ever seen in any movie. It fucks me up every time and they're picking up her stuff like <laughs> look at how lame this person is gross look at her ceiling what gross how do you live like this and she's trying to be like no you don't understand like no no uh, i'm a good yeah person. that was rough it's but that's us right like we we want to be able to inspire others we want to be able to have a, a message to deliver to the world before we die what am I going to leave behind when I die? Maybe I can help somebody along the way. But we are also turning that in on ourselves. So people are now going to be able to judge us, be able to 
laugh at us. Even our version of ourselves we wish we were could be like, haha, you're fat and ugly. Your hair is horrible color and you're just this horrible person. Look at how stupid your house looks. Look how stupid your ceiling is. Um, it, it is so horrific. Every aspect of that whole scene is so horrific. Um, you know, there was one saving grace, one saving grace. I'll, let me just say this, Jim, I'm gonna give it to you. The one, the, the one saving grace of all of this, all the existentialism and to, to a large extent depression, I think in this movie, is that we got to see Jennifer Connelly's vagina. I had no expectation of that when I, I just, that I did not understand that that would be in this movie. It was very surprising to me. That is- uh, God, That's awful. <laughs> so let me, uh, let yeah, so with that, Jim, what were you gonna say, Jim? Go ahead. Well, I mean, see, we were, we were both gonna sort of make an undercut joke. Like you made a, uh, uh, a Jennifer Codley undercut joke. My undercut joke was, uh, Shayra, I think in the, just as you were talking about like dreams and all that stuff and and uh, the, the your, uh, you know, your house and your material, I think your dog was having a bad dream behind you because his paw starts Yeah, I noticed that too. Oh my God, I'm glad you said that. Dog and going, well, what the fuck is going on with that, that dog? Uh, anyway, can we- uh, No, it's, it's beautiful. Like that, that's yeah. exactly it though, right? Right. Like, right, right, right. I, I'm trying to tell you guys an important message, and the thing that's noticed is my dog is having a nightmare behind us. Like, well, I'm listening to you too. No, like, I know you are, but that's beautiful. Like that was beautiful, yeah. beautiful. I, I love, I love the idea of that joke. Like that's, it's. But what amazing. if he's really dreaming about being best in show? You know, the little, <laughs> the red dress. You know, like the red dress. Oh my gosh. Okay, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you guys this because you guys are all. Uh, I believe you're all dude dudes. Um, did you guys see the uh, uh, the undertone of mommy issues in this in this film? Uh, the the so Harry's mom was like got this obsession with wearing a red dress, the red dress that makes her look really good. But did you notice that his girlfriend had the red dress on on the pier when he was hallucinating a little bit? Uh, when she's sitting at the edge of the pier is like a pursuit but not only that uh we had a cut of uh what, what is the name of marlon wayans character um tyrone yeah tyrone when he was in this room with a gorgeous woman laying on his bed and he's thinking about his mom mm, and then she's true. like what are what are you thinking about he's like oh i'm thinking about you baby like there's this uh this theme i saw <laughs> and i noticed of kind of replacing your mother figure type with the the girl that you're with. Um, I, I'm wondering if you guys noticed that, or if you have any input on that, or if I may be just seeing shit from that from that. No, that's that's really interesting. I didn't notice the red dress thing at first. That's fucking crazy. I mean, like I I noticed the thing about Tyrone, right? Like, I mean, I think they make that pretty clear. Um, so, like, obviously, when he's laying with her. Uh, he's thinking about his mom and then like toward the end of the movie, I think he has some of like the same kind of flashbacks when he's in the prison cell. But yeah, it's, I, I think she, for him definitely was a mother replacement and that must've been the thing in him that he was kind of like missing. Um, but dang, yeah, that Harry, like I, now that I think about it, yeah. Whenever she's out on the pier and she's wearing that red dress, like I guess in, in, in a sort of a way it's like, he abandons his mother, right? Like obviously he never goes home. He's still in shit from her whenever he does go home and using that to kind of like buy heroin. But I think at that stage of like the beginning of the movie, it's really Marion that he kind of like idealized and sort of fills the meaning 
within him, like that that missing place where he's trying to fill with meaning. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's kind of like he's cut himself off from this like primal relationship that he has, replaced her with this other woman, but then by the end of the movie, he's replaced Marion with drugs, and then by the end of the movie, that completely lets him down. So yeah, I mean, I think if you follow the chain backwards, it maybe potentially leads us to like this answer about the first place that we draw meaning as humans is from our mothers. Um, I don't know, and that gets very Freudian, right? Like if you, if you want to fucking if you want to drag some of that up, I mean, we can we can definitely put Freud in here and have that kind of like that that relationship that men have with their mothers. Um, and like, but even even at that though too, like you notice that with Marion, like she has this very disconnected relationship with her parents. And so like, I think that theme is definitely with there with her too, even if it's a little bit different. And so you have this guy that she sees at the beginning of the movie, but also like whenever she has to get money that, that like older bald dude or whatever. And like, I'm really interested, like I, I'm not entirely clear what that relationship is about, right? Like if, if he was her therapist, but if we think about that too, um, for her, it becomes the opposite thing. Like it's, she's trying to draw meaning from like her relationship or her missing relationship with her father that may have potentially then be replaced with her relationship with her therapist and then with Harry and then with drugs. Um, so yeah, like I definitely think there's kind of like a chain for each character that we can follow backwards and kind of come up with that same core issue. That's really interesting. Parental issues. That's never come to, came up in any of our movies that we've ever discussed. No, especially not mine. Especially no, not like, yeah. No. <laughs> uh, I, I just, I, I'm glad that you said all the things you said, though, because I, I saw this correlation. I'm like, am I just reading way too much into this? So um, I'm, I'm glad I, gl I'm glad I got to hear what you had to say. That was really great. Um, so I, I do this sometimes. I'm like, am I crazy or? So I always like to get you guys' feedback. Yeah, I agree with a lot of what Ben said. Um, can we talk about how awesome the music is on this? I'd yeah. I would love to discuss the technicality in this film now. I would love yeah. to discuss it. Clint Mansell is the composer, and the uh, the the violin quartet that he's got going on here is absolutely unbelievably awesome. Um, I think she, I think the music in this film is almost by itself a character. I'm trying to look up the uh, the name. I, re I remember the quartet had a a particular name. Um, and Kronos. That it's like, yeah, Kronos. Kronos, yes. Okay, good, good. Thank you for finding that for me. They are awesome. I think the music is a, almost a character in this film. Technically, the music, the, oh my God, how good the music is on this in this movie. Um, I did not, I, that's one thing that I forgot in the last 19 years. Um, how amazing the score is. Also, Ellen Burstyn, I mean, I already said that she should have won the Academy Award over fucking Julia Roberts. Um, although I think Julia Roberts is a fine actress. No offense um, to Julia Roberts, but... <laughs> between Aaron Brockovich and Ellen Burstyn in Requiem for a Dream, I'd take Ellen Burstyn every day of the week and twice on Sunday to quote Aaron Sorkin. Um, I, think it, I think she's... I, there are so many fucking... There are so many scenes where she is just acting by herself. Like, she's acting with a refrigerator, for fuck's sake. Like, there are scenes where she's acting with a refrigerator as her scene partner. Uh, most of her entire... Most of her, her performance is, like, her and Darren Aronofsky in a camera. Um, and and it's, it's a masterful 
masterful job of acting. Um, Jared Leto is is quite good. Uh, Jennifer Conley. Um, I know we sort of uh, talk about her as uh, like look. Jennifer Conley gets, I think, unfairly maligned because of how beautiful she is. She is absolutely. I mean, of course, she's she's a luminous, uh, a luminous actress, and she's luminously beautiful. But she is a really good actress, and I think she plays a fantastic. Like she's really good in Requiem for a Dream. She's also good in in. Uh, Beautiful Mind, a film that I have some issues with, and House in, of Sand and Fog is another film that, like, she's not just, I, I think we too, we focus too much on just how pretty she is. She is absolutely incredible as, as an actress as well, and I think that gets um, unfairly downplayed just how good she is. Uh, so I, I wanted to spend some time um, just talking about how this film on sort of a technical level and how good they how good this film is from a technical level yeah, the technical level is 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 probably the reason why i fell in love with this film i mean it, it did horrify me but the the style of this film is absolutely gorgeous um the 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 first uh the first pre presentation of the snorri cam when uh, you have uh, Tyrone in the in the limo talking to the deaf drug dealer guy, and uh, hey, you got a white driver, boom, 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 and then all of a sudden you cut edit, it's fall now. Then boom, Snorri cam. You have the the camera right here, and he's running with the blood on his face. And then they introduce the Snorri cam again when when uh, when uh, Marion is walking out of the down the hallway of shame, I guess down the elevator of shame too um it's such beautiful style you have the the fisheye lens you have the the time lapse uh camera effects and then uh my favorite is the hip-hop montage the constant cuts um what they have said is that an average 100 minute long movie has around 600 to 700 cuts but this film had 2,000 cuts uh lots and lots of edits and a lot of extreme close-ups and a lot of interesting technicality to it. And, you know, he, he said he didn't want to have this, have that MTV feel, feel to it, but it did definitely take in some of the stylization of music videos of the 90s and implement it into storytelling in a way that had never really been fulfilled yet. And I think it inspired a lot of artists. Um, it's it's fucking fantastic. I love it. I love the technicality behind this film. Sorry, go ahead. Binowitz is the uh, is the editor, so let's give name credit to. I agree with you about the edit editing. Jay Rabinowitz is the uh, the film editor, and I think this is it's uh, Aronofsky. Obviously, you know, obviously directed the film. Um, his first film was Pi, and then they gave him a budget, and uh, then well, his first. Uh, uh, his first uh, feature film was Pi. Um, he did shorts prior to that. Uh, then they gave him a budget, and he pounded out Requiem for a Dream. Then, and so I, I, you know, he sort of uh, no sophomore slump for uh, for Aronofsky. Unfortunately, however, uh, they gave him an even big, bigger budget, and he did The Fountain. So, <laughs> I haven't seen it yet because I, I've I've heard I've heard a lot of torrid things about it, and I do want to. 
I do want to watch it eventually. I think I want to watch it with someone who can appreciate film with me, though. I think it would be nice to watch it with someone who yeah. cares about movies. Um, but I, I do want to point out something that he did in this film and how it carried on uh, through other stuff. So it, it, there's a scene. You guys remember the uh, upshot of Marion in the bathtub? She's curled up into kind of a little ball in the bathtub. Yeah. And then she's underwater, though. And then you cut to her screaming in the bubbles. So that scene was specifically copying an anime. Uh, uh, what is it? Perfect Blue. And um, he purchased the rights to uh, that film, that anime, uh, just so he could cut and shoot that scene in that particular way. And it's beautiful. Uh, it's a very beautiful recreation of that. But because he had already purchased the rights to that anime, he then decided to pretty much remake that anime into the version he would like, which is the Black Swan, which a lot of people know the Black Swan. A lot of people don't know Perfect Blue. I do suggest you go watch that anime. It is uh, just beautiful shots and very interesting storylines. But I don't know that a lot of people are into anime. <laughs> but if you see the correlation from this film to Black Swan, Maybe then you can uh, dip your toes into the anime world. Um, but uh, there's definitely things that he borrows from the people that he um, has been inspired by. And then he puts it out there. And I did see that a lot with Pi. Um, it was one of another one of my favorite films when I was in my teen years. So um, he's, he's good at borrowing properly. If, if that's, a, is that a, is that a right way to put it? I like how he borrows things. Homaging instead of stealing. Or, yeah, uh, yeah recontextualizing re instead of theft. I think that's right. I think you're right there. Um, yeah, and uh, regarding The Fountain, it's a film that has its defenders. Um, I'm not one of them, but there are some people who like it, and they can, they can kind of defend the film, um, and it's not a film for me. Um, but, yeah, Aronofsky, I think, is, is one of our, most interesting filmmakers um, and and Requiem for a Dream kind of solidified him as one. So yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, yeah, what about uh, Ben and Noah? Did you want to talk um, laud praises or or perhaps uh, talk about this film technically in a, uh, a negative way? What a shitty soundtrack. Can I just say, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I just want to say, I just, I just want to say, if ever we meet Darren Aronofsky, if we ever go to like a, a cinema event, Shayra, I want you to walk up to him, just hit on him, and say, I like the way you borrow things. Just, I love the way you borrow things. I just want to see what his reaction would be. It's anyway. such an insult, but I'm actually. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, honestly, all all good art is borrowed, right? Um, and and there's some really great Instagrams I follow where they talk about, um how film correlates with each other. So they'll take different shots from one movie and another and overlap them yeah. to see how similar they are. And and then you know, oh, that director was totally giving a shout out to that movie from the 50s. That's so cool. Like I I actually like the acts. Uh, I think it's I think it's actually beautiful. I'll uh I'll hand this over to Ben. I just well the quick thing I would say about that this piece is I'll Obviously, the music is fucking iconic. I knew this. I knew the music before I knew the movie. Like, wh I, when can I say that? It's not like that for Halloween. I saw Halloween when I heard them. Like, you know what I mean? Like, iconic uh, movie soundtracks. I've seen the film. This is the only one I can think of where I was familiar with uh, the, you know, the 
the the music from it before seeing the movie, like 20 years later, you know? Um, Can I ask that, you a question about that? Yeah, yeah. How did that make you feel when you saw what the music was supposed oh, dude, to be conveying? It, okay, so like if you go to, fuck, I mean, you can do this. Anyone can who's watching this can do this. Go to YouTube and put in Requiem for a Dream and put like AMV, like an, like a, an anime video or something, or just like a collection of clips about any any particular anything, right? And it's always uplifting. It's an up, the, the Requiem for a Dream soundtrack is uplifting and it's like iconic and like building and it's almost like, uh, uh, shit, what am I thinking of? Um, fuck, 2001 A Space Odyssey. What's the uh, the song, um, the main thing from that? Anyway, like an iconic, uplifting, upbeat, building up. So you'll see comments like, this is the the sound I make when I'm turning in my homework assignment. You know, the, it's like shit like that, right? But you don't know the context of the movie. When you see the movie, it's fucking terrifying. Um, the buildup is not for anything good. It's not a Lord of the Rings track. It's it, To me, it was a Lord of the Rings track before this movie. You know what I mean? Like a very um, epic is the word I was trying to think of. Not iconic, epic. Like an epic soundtrack sort of thing. And when I saw the movie, to place it in its proper context fucking ruined it for me, ruined this entire uh, soundtrack for me. Um, so See, I- I flip that and that's where I come from. I watched mm, the movie okay. first and then I yeah. see all these dumbasses turning it into something yeah. happy yeah. and I'm like, what the fuck? How are you turning this depressing ass music into something happy? Yeah, because it, yeah, that's the strange <laughs> thing, right? It is I've I didn't understand it to be something that was that deep and and depressing and existential and had all this weight to it, this gravitas to it. It sounds like a Lord of the Rings tract in a lot of ways. So, um, which I think I don't. I mean, that's crazy to think of it that way. So, the other thing I was going to mention is just the 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 side by side um, shots in this film really highlighted the component of this film that made it so terrifying to me, which was the isolation. Shayra already talked about how uh, Harry and Marion are right next to each other, but they're in different boxes. They're completely separated. It's the same when he's talking, Harry's talking to his mom. There's a lot of split screens, split down the middle sort of shots that um, mean something. Like they mean something in this movie. And um, they're they're interspersed at just the right time in just the right way to make you feel the alienation a little more. It's more palpable. Um, so those are the two things that immediately jump to mind when I think of sort of how the film was shot in the music. Uh, anyway, sorry, this I literally was like, oh, let me thirty seconds, Ben. Let me do my thing, and then anyway. So th those are my those are my thoughts. So the thing about Space Odyssey is that song you were thinking of that Daisy Daisy Give Me Your Answer Do Bicycle Built for Two blah blah blah. The housings. Yeah, okay, okay. Anyway, anyway, anyway. All right, and the question we're looking at, okay, just to go back to the fountain thing, I think I remember this movie. Is that the one that's, um, it was uh, Hugh Jackman in that, correct? In the fountain? Yes. Yeah, fountain. In the fountain, yes. It was right. in the fountain, yeah. I, I saw that one time with a friend of mine, and I remember it being pretty awesome. So at some point, we might have to rewatch that. I might have to fight with you about that because I feel like I would be a proponent of that movie. Um, okay. Anyway, <laughs> I look forward to you fucking with me. <laughs> oh, glad, I would gladly fuck with you um, about this movie. All right. So I want to say about the soundtrack. All right. I, I definitely agree with Jim that it's it's so important in this movie that it could be considered a character. And like 
not to not to go back to our, our conversation about shining on this where i totally disagreed about the, the 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 hotel being a character but like i i really do feel like the music is that important in this particular film i kind of find myself wondering if we would be having the same conversation even about this movie if the music was different and i really think that it, not necessarily if it was taken out um i do think some well-placed silence can honestly make certain scenes a lot more terrifying for instance at the very end of that movie maybe if we had the amputation scene with no music at all after an entire music where all of this was being built up and all all we had were the terrified screams of harry um it could have been quite impactful but on the other side of that if it were replaced with something a little bit um lighter i i kind of think almost this could could have potentially turned into sort of like a dark comedy right like i kind of i kind of think of myself imagining the end of this movie with like um with sort of like a, a curb your enthusiasm type bent on this where we have you know everyone has their plans and everyone's kind of like planning this certain thing happening and then it all just goes fucking awry um, I really think that that kind of spin could have been put on this artfully if the music. I hate to cut you off, but I want someone to make this meme. Take all of them going into fetal position, but then put the Larry David music. Dun 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 dun. dun, dun. <laughs> I think you're right. That would be hilarious. Would it be perfect though? I mean, it would be hilarious. Uh, I don't know if it would achieve the same effect, but it would be really funny. You uh, postmodern fucks. That's all I have to say. Yeah, postmodern fucks. That's fair. That's fair. I'll, I'll take that. Yeah, I mean, if we're if we're going to be talking about millennials during this podcast, I don't really, I, I feel like that's kind of been our answer to the whole the existential question, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, all of it's kind of like meaningless and empty and pointless, but we can make a joke about it. Let's fucking make memes. Let's, you know, I mean, we might as well, right? Like, what else is there going to do? Like, let's make a joke. Let's make that's it. That's actually really important, <laughs> though, because okay, so in the '90s, there was this idea that like we have to follow our dreams, blah blah blah. It. And we've realized now that it's horseshit. So we have this generation now. I mean, it's almost 20 years later, right? After the, the 90s hit. And now we're in this place where we could be like, ha, 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 memes about suicide. Ha, ha, ha. I got out of bed and put on pants. I am a success. That is a completely different message from yeah. what the 90s were. And when, when Kylie was watching this, she was kind of confused. But when I was talking to her about this, She's like, man, they just needed some suicide jokes. <laughs> and I'm like, right. That that's what. That's that's wild. Things. That's wild. Yeah. That's I one mean, of the most poignant things. It's fucked, right? But it's one of the most poignant things. We need to be able to to kind of accept that life is kind of sucky sometimes, and we need to talk about it. They just needed cheerful yeah. nihilism back then. That's right? what they needed. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing, though. You're talking about a really essential difference between the way I grew up in the 90s and uh, the way your daughter is currently growing up. She's growing up in an age of irony where the language of the language of dealing and negotiating the the horrors of the planet is through irony and irony is the opposite of sincerity. Those are two very uh, Irony burns everything down, whereas sincerity is all about, a, you know, a, a, a real belief in oneself and a real belief in the possibility of one's dreams to, to come true. And so I think it's I, I, it's both it's both refreshing and um, scary 
that she would react that way. It's refreshing because yes, if you don't take yourself so seriously, then you're probably not going to end up in a fetal position with only one arm and a gangrened, uh, you know, a, a gangrened uh, uh, AC vein. But at the same time, if your entire way of dealing with the world and with with if life, your addiction is memes, Noah. Exactly. Like, you might have a problem. <laughs> with it, then you're sort of closing your own. I don't know, I don't know what you're talking, talking about. Yeah. Sincere emotion. And that's that's just as scary, I think. I'm not, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be, uh, <laughs> you, uh, you and Kylie interact how you want to interact. You know, I'm not getting in the middle of that. But like that, like if I heard my daughter say, oh yeah, they just need a few memes about suicide, that would actually concern me because Irony is, it's a brush fire. It, 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 it destroys sincerity. It destroys the bullshit that you're fed every day from a bunch of fucking whacked out life-saving gurus that tell you everything's going to be positive. No, you know what? Everything's going to be boring. Everything's sure. going to be boring. And sometimes you're going to feel like utter shit. And there are going to be times where you do feel like you maybe shouldn't be here anymore. Maybe not necessarily suicide. Not not everybody is suicidal, but you can relate sometimes because you're like, you know what? If a rock hit me, knocked me out, and I was gone. Eh, I, I mean, there's utility. I mean, there's utility in that. I mean, I, I fear be damned. I, I I get it. It's but there's utility in that thinking too. I mean, it may be horrifying to it a certain extent. It is horrifying. But there's also utility in it. You know. It's yeah, a weird philosophy difference between the 90s and the 2019s. It's I'll not even that much time. What makes this scary, actually, is that hasn't been much time. Imagine 20 years from now, the fuck are we going to be? You know what I mean? Like, that's the scary part to me is how the, the rapidity of sort of those philosophical paradigms and those jumps, you know, 20 years. And that's the difference between the way we can encapsulate the way generations think about these sorts of uh, existential issues. Horrifying. That's the horrifying part to me. It's not that, I mean, it's not that, uh, that it's not that odd. I mean, uh, sure, sure. 70s to 90s, that's a big jump, 70s. too. You're, you're right. Yeah. I mean, even think about uh, Back to the Future. Like Garrett made this observation. So I'm, I'm stealing his his thoughts on this. But what uh, are you, Aronofskiing? He's Aronofskiing Garrett's thoughts. Yeah. This got weird. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm Aronofskiing Garrett's thoughts because he talks about Back to the Future as an existential nightmare. Uh, the people who watch Back to the Future in 2015 look at Back to the Future the same way we did when we were watching it in 1985, and uh, uh, you know that's that's a pretty scary, um, a pretty scary prospect. Is that people are looking back on 1985 the same way we looked back on 1955 when we watched it um, when it first came out. It's it's a yeah. I mean, you're right. The rapidity of development is um, both scary, but not uh, not all not that far outside the norm. I think. Yeah. Do you guys want to? Anyone else have any like strands of thoughts they want to go down, or do you guys want to? Do you guys want to summarize our thoughts in this? Or you guys got anything else you want to talk about? Yeah, I think I've got like one more thread um, that I kind of want to think about here, right? So like I'm I'm thinking about this uh, from the perspective of our discussion about American Psycho not too long ago. And so like if we're talking about the shift between decades, right? Like I think about this as being an 80s film where you have the pressure of the time period to, to try and succeed and be this perfect image of this person 
at the expense of the the entire internal experience, uh, at the expense of the entire internal experience, um, driving this person literally insane, I think, or like maybe this, if, if you want to interpret it that way, right? Like the tension of there being zero reflection on the inside sort of results in this culture where we have this this sort of like superficial nightmare and that's the horror of the 80s and then you come to the 90s and maybe it's something more like uh requiem for a dream where we have this realization that we're chasing our dreams we're trying to do all these things and there's all this hope and all this superficial false hope but we kind of like fall off at the end and there's really no safety net there from the existential nightmare that we face to the the modern day i guess where we have lost memes where we literally take this this incredibly depressing topic about a person finding out that his girlfriend like has a miscarriage or something and then turning that into a fucking joke where you see the same just like the pattern in the cartoon everywhere and you just turn this into this this joke about like the form of this entirely depressing thing and that's kind of like what we're talking about right like that's our sort of inoculation um to the seriousness of life but that that kind of also makes me think okay well the antidote to this movie the antidote to requiem for a dream is not to chase these sort of deeper philosophical meanings for life or chase these these paths or these struggles with so much seriousness that you sort of get lost in it and forget to just kind of I don't know. I don't know that you you, you don't chase it with with so much intensity that you you lose the point, right? I mean, I think that if you sort of gloss everything over with kind of like a nice humorous ironic sheen then it keeps you from going to the depths where you completely abandon the thing that you're actually finding meaning in for something that is sort of like a, a false, like a fool's gold, like not all that glimmers is gold kind of thing, right? Like you're chasing this sort of like in-state and you entirely forget yourself in that. But that kind of reminds me a little bit of Fight Club too. Like I feel like Fight Club is sort of the antithesis of this because at the beginning of the movie, you have sort of similar states where you have a main character who is sort of obsessed with this superficial image um but then you have like two different paths being followed whereas like uh what's her name sarah is it i, f I forget yeah sarah goldfarb kind of like gets obsessed with that image to an extreme degree takes drugs to be able to kind of like push this narrative forward for herself whereas the narrator in fight club kind of like completely abandons that and sort of like embraces the psychosis and burns it all down in that brush fire of irony right um, I think like the quote that I'm thinking of there is that you are not your job, you are not how much money you have in the bank, you are not the car you drive, you are not the contents of your wallet, you are not your fucking khakis, you are the all singing, all dancing crap of the world. It's like this ultimate acceptance that we're all just here kind of like randomly vibrating matter in this sort of like existential horror. There's no answer at the end of the day. So you can either let that drive you mad and you can fall into a pit of despair, you can fall into the void, or you can just let it go and kind of fucking go with it and burn the whole thing down because why not, you know? I just I just saw you in a beautiful blue dress in your ice castle just start going, let it go, let it go. <laughs> I am telling That's what my daughter's generation, that's what their <laughs> Disney princesses are telling them. What, look, look at the difference between our Disney princesses and hers, right? Yeah, our Disney princesses were aspirational and hers are both ironic and aspirational and that's uh, i mean i trust me i understand the 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 draw of irony and and that makes a lot of sense to me but i'm also not un um i, I i'm also sensitive to the possibility that irony is you don't want us to get addicted to it 
Exactly. That and, thank which you. Is, which is what the point of the movie was, right? It, it, too much of a good thing. So it's balanced. Thing. So it's balanced. Balance. Like what I'm getting from all of you is a kind of balance because it's like if we listen, if we go too far, Ben, like and I don't think Ben is advocating this, but let's say we we go too hard on Ben's trip, right? This is getting super meta. We go too hard on Ben's trip. We're 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 Deadpool assizing, you know, everything that we do, and it's all about irony, and there's a loss there. But at the same time, you know, the the sort of self self help '90s reach your goals. You know, you can do it. Just say no. Just do this. Just fill in the blank. That's also the opposite of. The, the opposite extreme of the issue. It's almost like there's a formula and we if, if you get too far one way, you, you kind of go to the other and it's a balance. And finding that sort of equilibrium is sort of maybe the antidote to Requiem for a Dream. It's a, a bit of stoicism, a bit of acceptance at the same time, a bit of fight. You know, there's, there's a, a little bit of everything there. I mean, and that sounds like it would be the sort of antidote for something so deeply... Um, depressing and nihilistic and imbalanced. really just rough. Yeah, Im imbalanced as life. You know, maybe that's something like the uh, the, the way to fix this. It's very interesting. Mm. But also, I mean, you know, irony is sort of a a um, a product, at least the the um, ubiquity of irony is a product of post-structuralism and post-structuralism. Yeah. Um, and postmodernism kind of argues, beware of any narratives that Structures. fix anything. Yeah. yeah. Especially the ones that say, oh, if we just find a balance, if we work the, you know, even those post-structuralism would burn all over. Um, so I, well, yeah, I mean, this is, I feel like um, this has been like uh, uh, how to live with deadly analysis. Uh, we've almost become like- Don't tell me we're turning into self-help gurus because I will fucking freak out. Don't <laughs> don't say we're turning into self-help gurus. That's a little bit though, aren't we? Like we kind of like welcome to the Foucault deadly analysis hour. Like you know, no. yeah. I, but I, you know, like how that's that's a great like that's this movie. Like I think you can't like you can't do this movie justice without these conversations. Um, if we were to bloodbath and beyond this shit, we'd be like, oh, don't do heroin. You know, that's not this, I'm, that's super, I'm being so rude. Uh, that's not this, that's not this movie. You know, this movie is, is meant to, it's meant to make you go that extra step and feel that uncomfortability in a very raw way. Very raw, hold on, hold on. Very raw, raw way. Uh, sorry, that's, it's from raw. That poster. Anyway, oh, holy crap. Okay, I'm good. I'm good. Sorry, that's what I get for trying to show you a Parisian on my uh, my thing. Anyway, so uh, yeah, I I feel like you're not going to do this movie justice without going that extra step and 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 talking about these sort of like, I, I never would have guessed that it would have jumped the fence between like millennials and Gen X maybe, but like that's the dating part of this movie. That's the looking back on and seeing sort of like. I guess the message back then versus how we interpret it now. Like we're interpreting this movie 20 years later and it's not the sort of movie that you can easily, like it's very dated in that sense in terms of the message, in terms of what was going on. So I think I think we did this movie really good justice by trying to dance around these issues with uh, you know a, a bit of irony, Deadpoolization thrown into the mix can too. Can throw in some more irony? Yeah. Oh my God. Just, I love irony. Sprinkle that shit on like it's cheese. So Go. The ironic part about it is it's, it's telling us that there are all these 
things that we're inundated with that are trying to manipulate us, right? You have these like people on TV trying to sell us stuff. There's all these people trying to send you down these get rich quick ideas and, and quick fixes and all that stuff. But the film in and of itself is a, is a form of manipulation in this way. I mean, if you look at it, the music, the lighting even in in Sarah Goldfarb's apartment is this like weird greenish, like yellowish, like putrid color that at first pops up when he is noticing his mom's on drugs is behind the refrigerator. But then the entire house has that weird greenish, yellowish lighting of grossness. And then you realize that he's using manipulative practices to tell his story uh, with the editing and the camera work and the lighting and the uh, the way that all this stuff is portrayed, it's meant to manipulate you in a way that makes you nauseous and uncomfortable and sad, where you could easily replace the music with something more uplifting and it would change the story in in uh, the scene where he's telling his girlfriend, Marion, hey, yeah, you can follow your dreams and make this wonderful thing scary music is playing in the background as opposed to something positive and uplifting of, of him supporting his girl. I mean, and doesn't that go to the narrative of the search being part of, like the way you search being part of the problem? Like if, if the scary music is happening, if the buildup is happening when you are in moments of the film where it's, it's, it's positive and it's, it's the goal, the goal oriented aspects of this movie when things aren't necessarily at their worst is when the most horrifying tunes start to begin. Um, you know, like that's, that's the point, right? That's the, I think that's the brilliance of this movie. If I could encapsulate it, that's how I would encapsulate it. It's like, like the, the building up during moments when things are great and, or I shouldn't say great, but there's, they're goal oriented. We're going to do this. It's good. Let's go. We're going to be this. We're going to get this. And that's when the scariest move, the scariest music starts happening. Like that's uh that's really intense. That's a really great way to film a movie. But it's also very manipulative. It is super fucked up. That's why it's so great. <laughs> um, I, I did ask some people in the chat if they wanted to say anything before we go. Um, Byron brought up Black Swan and that that is more considered uh, one of his uh, horror movies. Do you guys consider that a horror movie as well? Oh, yes. I think yes. it's a fantastic horror film. I'm a huge fan. Yes. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Two thumbs up for Black Swan. Um, I'd rate it just about the same as I would rate Requiem for a Dream. Uh, same star rating, but uh, I, it's a different film and it's doing different things. And I, and I like what it's doing. I like we, Black Swan. We were talking about this before the podcast started, before we went live. We're, we're doing a lot of um, art, art films, dance films, especially in the next month. Uh, you'll notice that in our uh, in our uh, social media. So we posted our, like we literally came to the tail end of the films that we were gonna do. We have a list, but what we decided to do is sort of um, do a, a film every week. We usually do this this show every two weeks, but for the next month or so, every Sunday night we'll be here doing podcasts. So Sunday night, 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, load this channel up, we'll be doing a film. So we're doing, uh, with the exception next week, we're doing Us, Jordan Peele's Us. Uh, the week, I think after that we're doing Climax. We're gonna be doing Suspiria. There's a lot of dance, a lot of art, a lot of Parisian stuff going on. We're going to be doing Raw, so Paris is in there for some reason a lot. I don't know what's wrong with me. But um, so, uh, yeah, there's a there's a kind of, there's there's an artsy dance sort of vibe going on in some of the horror films for the next month. What's that? 
Climax too. Climax, Climax, yeah. totally. Which I mean, uh, that's art, dance and drugs. It is. Yeah, there's dance and that's right. There's dance and drugs. There's a lot of that going on. I, I'd be by the end of all of these podcasts. Let's say by the end of April, I'd love to tie together some strings and be like, what, like what? How are these connected thematically? Maybe like what are what? <laughs> I, I think we selected them sort of by happenstance, but you know these are all films that have come out recently, last year or two. So, be interesting to see what what uh, strings we can tie together to make these all kind of connect. Um, but I just noticed that a lot of them are drugs, a lot of them are dancing, a lot of them are art. Very strange. A lot of them are Paris. Um, some cannibalism in there for Jim, just specifically for Jim. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Did you guys, and since yeah. we're going into us next week, and and this can segue to the end. Uh, uh, Lindsay Allen brought up uh, Marlon Wayans' performance in this film. Uh, he was generally known as a comedian, a very wacky, hilarious type person. And then he took this role, which was very bizarre, honestly, <laughs> a very different direction for him. Um, and and she, she says that she thought he did amazing in this. Uh, it's... I think it's one of his best performances. I know that that's a crazy thing to say, but I maybe it's just because I'm not a, com a comedy person as much. But we are going into like a Jordan Peterson world where he's this comedy guy who veered off and is is Jordan Peele. Yelling. Jordan Peele, not Jordan Peterson. Jordan oh, Peele. Sorry, Peele. Sorry, not Jordan Peterson. I'm sorry. Someone wrote <laughs> Jordan Peterson over in the comment section, and it fucked me up. We did. I think we we discussed Jordan Peterson previously when we did the lobster. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, there's so much shit going on here. Peel, Peterson, lobsters. God damn, this got meta very quickly. Holy sorry, shit. Sorry. My my point is the, the comedy veering off into these scary drama situations. What do you guys think of of that? Uh because we've talked about this a number of times. Uh, <laughs> we've talked about like this idea that comedy and horror are almost on the same kind of rhythm. Um, but I, I almost like them better in their drama and horror modes. What do you guys think? Yeah, like my five second thing is that there's a there's an insight into the nature of reality that comedians and people who understand horror, I think, share. I think that some of the world is so utterly terrifying and comedic that it shares a funny bone. It shares some spot in the human condition that uh, I guess comedians tap into, you know how comedians can point out things that you just already knew, but you never really thought about and they point it out and you laugh. I think horror is the same way. You know, I think horror is, is reflective in the same way that comedy is reflective. And I think a good comedian can do a good horror film if those two things connect in the right sort of way. Jordan Peele is a great example of that. Both work on shock, both work on yeah. uh, undercutting expectations. Um and uh, one of the things I, I'll sort of preview, one of the things I'll note about us is uh, there's a moment when he particularly frames a shot so that he's setting you up for a jump scare and then doesn't do the jump scare later. And I think that's absolutely genius because when he does do jump scares later, it makes it even more effective. Uh, both comedians and horror filmmakers work on shock. I don't know how that works as an actor, though. Um, whether or not he's... I thought Marlon Wayans was good in this. I really liked him. In fact, I would like him to do more drama and, and more um, horror films because I'm, his comedy doesn't really work for me. Uh, so I, But I think there's, there's sort of a question, right? Is as a... Uh, 
there's a difference between Jordan Peele, who is kind of the auteur of Get Out and and Us, and using the same type of comedy horror tools of shocking, undercutting, um, social commentary, etc. And then as an actor, uh, those are there are different tools at play as a comedian than as a a drama and horror um, artist. So I. I He's not necessarily, Marlon Wayans isn't necessarily the author of uh, Requiem for a Dream, even though, of course, he's an artistic participant. So I think there is a difference between the two art forms and how it um, how it works. Uh, Mar Marlon Wayans was like, I just needed a paycheck. Like, I was broke. I just needed money. Like that's Maybe. Who knows? You know, I, I don't know. I don't know his life. Uh, I honestly maybe felt he like he was trying to break out of, special, uh, I felt like he was trying to break out of a, a stereotype of who he was uh with this role yeah uh, but i thought he was absolutely fantastic in this role uh him running with the snorri cam with the blood on his face is is still something burned in my mind <laughs> like he did yeah. uh and here's the thing you know we can look at the the whole white girls type movie where he's doing this wacky you know ridiculous type thing but he is very good with facial animation uh and and that comes through when he's horrified by something that just happened to him it, it it's almost pronounced to more of a horrific thing i i don't know it just seems like the way that face animated comedians like jim carrey uh the way that they can contort their faces when you can put it in a horror uh element i i don't know there's something about that for me that almost brings chills down my spine where you're like he could have made this funny, but he's scaring the shit out of me right well, now. It's like Robin Williams. He did. He did. A, he had a, something like a horror film too. You know. Yeah. I think there's there's a lot of that here. One hour photo. Hmm. Well, one thing I kind of wonder about here too is like I, I know just like maybe maybe I'm thinking more of like stand up comedians than of silly sort of like um, scary movie quote unquote like type movies that like the Wayans brothers are involved in. Um, but I, I do think there is a relationship there that, that is a little bit deeper between horror and comedy. And um, it, it, it kind of comes out because, first of all, we do know, obviously, whenever, whenever people are making horror films, I think it's most potent whenever it's an art form that can be used for, like, self-reflection. So, like, I, I thought about this a lot whenever we were doing Seventh Seal, regardless of whether or not you consider that a horror film. I do. And I think probably the reason it was made was because it was, it was meant to speak to kind of a horror that the director was feeling, but comedians kind of do a lot of the same thing. And if you think about stand-up comedy as being kind of like this, this honest sort of, I'm going to bring up this shit in my life that really kind of like messes with me. That's like maybe a dark moment. Like, I mean, if you, if you think about like Sam Kinison, right? Like, or, or any other, any other stand-up comedian, and I really hate to go into stand-up comedy on this because it, it dates itself and, and it has a low shelf life in terms of political correctness and all that. But whenever you think about these jokes, they generally refer back to like this horrible traumatic event or something that happens in a person's life. But then they get up on stage and they use that as a fuel to make a joke and make people laugh. And like whenever you think about kind of like the relationship there, right? it's both about self-reflection into a deeper, like darker part of yourself. And I want to give a call out right now to uh, ContraPoints on YouTube. If you, if you haven't checked out the ContraPoints YouTube channel, um, I, I highly recommend that. Go go check out Natalie's stuff. But one video that she made very recently called The Darkness is about this very topic, right? And so she talks about how, um, 
you know, some people who are going through like the, and in, in, in particular in the context of like uh, the experience of a trans person, how she might make jokes about things going on in her life that are okay, that help her move through that trauma, but it's going to be totally fucked up if someone else makes it. But she makes those jokes in her, and she's able to point out like the funny things in that experience because she lives it every single day. And so I think you have to earn the, the self-reflection and the experience necessary to both create good horror but also to create good comedy. I think the same thing fuels both of those, right? So like if you're good at one, I think, I feel like you're probably going to have a natural inclination on average comparatively to be able to do the other, which is my opinion. I agree with that. Um, although, I, you know, I just wonder uh, about the difference between an auteur and an interpretive artist. That's the only caveat that I would add. But aside from that, I think you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, but, uh, obviously, Peel's gotten on the level where he's probably going to be more important than Hitchcock, and I'm going there, yes. Um, I think that he's really starting a wave, uh, and it's fascinating what he's creating here. Um, but uh, I, I, I feel like there is this connection that I have been continuously talking about the entirety of this show honestly <laughs> there's like there's these beats and and we talked about music in this movie right and we talk about comedy and horror having this connection and and the connection with music and and then jared leto he became a rock star or whatever some of these things just have these beats right there's just these beats to life that all are interconnected and um i feel like comedy and horror and music all they have these weird beats and it's just magic and I love how they're interconnected. And um, I don't know, I hope to see more and more people understand the importance of music and comedy and horror and how if you hit these right notes, uh, you can get people to feel things. If you get me to feel things when watching a movie, hooray, like you won. <laughs> well, it's and like, it's like horror's art. Like that's kind of, that's, that's the yeah. way to look at it is we think of horror movies as Sleepaway Camp 3 or, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like when you think of a horror movie, you don't think of these sort of deep seated connections, these under, like these deeply grounded philosophical issues that people wrestle with, maybe conceptualize and encapsulated in a, in a, in a super villain. You know what I mean? Uh, in a Michael Myers. I, I, this really came to us when we did our Halloween uh, session, sort of that, like the idealized monster and how that can be traced out. Like horror, if done right, um, is, should be a kind of art. This is part of the reason I won't get on my soapbox too much. I think Jim agrees with me here. Why horror films should be a part of the Oscars quite a bit more than they are. Um, very frustrating. You know, I, you would think hereditary would have been one of the moments. Get it there. I, I really hope father Peel will get it there, man, because if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be, it's going to be the master at this point. Um, Anyway, so I think that's the insight that you're you're hitting is that horror is the, the connection to music and and comedy is that it it's art. It it taps into something very deep about the human condition and expresses it in a, just a different way, in a way that tends to be visceral, in a way that tends to be off-putting, offsetting. Um, but that's that doesn't make it non-art. It just makes it a very particular type of art, you know. Um, anyway, should we? I love I, I love I love how I do segments, and there's no possible way to segue out of them. That's my goal here on this podcast. My goal is to say things to which there is no segue. If I've done that, I've done a good job. So, uh, so speaking of art, 
Noah, <laughs> what do you think Damn about it. this piece of art? <laughs> your final thoughts? Uh, okay, yeah, I'll go. I so my final thoughts about this movie, man. I literally, it's it's still on my brain. I watched it uh, literally twenty four hours ago. I twenty four hours ago from like right now, um, for the first time, and I like. I'll, I'll say this: I saw the drugs in the film as a as a, as a plot device and much less important than I had originally thought. And that was surprising to me. I liked where it took me um, with that regard. When we think of Sarah uh, at Goldberg, I think of the red dress of television. There's something about youth and youthful happiness and success. And here's my son, Harry, and he's successful and I'm young and everyone look at me. There's, there's that goal, that vibe, that need there. When I think of Harry, I think of drugs and a sort of, I, uh, the ideal of success and what it means to be successful and to not have to struggle, uh, to not have to rely on his mother, that sort of thing. When I think of Marion, I think of creativity and art and the stifling of that creativity and art because of drugs, the things that can stifle it. Um, when I think of Tyrone, I think of, of also, I think of drugs, but also I think of a kind of connectedness to his mom and a loneliness, the missing of that maternal component like these are all people who are missing something. They're missing something. Um, and these are all people to which the conquest of happiness becomes the negation of that happiness to a large degree. It's a, it's a consumption. It's something that consumes, that's regressive. And I did not go into this thinking that would be a movie that deep. Um, you know, And so I, I wanna give this movie all around probably an eight out of 10. Um, the fear component, it, this is a, one of those lobster-esque films where it's hard for me to really hone in on what it means to say this scared me. But overall, like I just, my brain goes straight to eight out of 10, uh, four out of five. It, it, it's, uh, the acting is great. The music is iconic. It is epic, uh, despite the fact that my brain has wired it to think it's Lord of the Rings soundtrack for some damn reason. Um, you know, I, I really like this movie. It exceeded my expectations. Um, you know, I have not seen Pi. Uh, I, I saw Mother. I, I think this is better than Mother. Um, but I, I, I love this film. It's a, it's a great movie. It was scary in the sense that it made me think about myself and what am I doing? Like, what is Noah doing that is similar to these characters? What am I, what am I seeking after this? I, what idealizations do I have about the sort of person I need to be? Cause I'm, I'm that kind of, I'm that kind of way. Like that's how I think I have, I'm very goal oriented. Um, I, I, I have a very addictive personality. It's easy for me to consume and to try and go, that's what I want. I'm going to get it. And, you know, everything else be damned. And so this movie was a reminder of the kind of need for a stoicism, acceptance, reflection, realization of who one is in light of those things, understanding the capacity one has for addiction or for the need to fulfill some some life end goal, like uh, taking a step back and breathing. This, this movie is almost for me, this is going to sound crazy, almost an exercise in mindfulness, which is wild to think about. Like for me, it's the ability to go, Am I like that? Is that what I do in any way in my life? I mean, and maybe that's part of Aronofsky's uh, point in this, you know? And if so, um, bravo, it, it did its trick with me. Uh, it's something that it uh, was about drugs, but more about more than about drugs and um, hit something a little deeper. Didn't expect that. So eight out of 10 for me. Yeah, I'll... Uh... 
sort of agree with almost everything you said. Um, I think the film sort of gets unfairly maligned as a uh, PSA about drugs. And uh, over the past two hours and whatever minutes, we have kind of broken that, uh, that reading and that interpretation of this film down. We've kind of uh, complicated that and suggested it, that it is uh, a little bit more than that. Um, the only improvement that I would su suggest to this film is get rid of Sarah's drugs and make her addiction something else. And I think that it makes that point even better. Um, that said, so that's my only kind of nick on this film, which means that I'm going to be really quite high in my star rating. Um, it's going to be 4.5 out of stop out of five for me. Four oh, and a half. That's high. That's really high for me. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I was sort of hovering about four. I think originally I was at four. Uh, but yeah, this is the more I think about this film, the more I don't want to, uh, the more I want to give it a little bit of a higher rating. And, uh, also that has to do with a lot of the technical and filmmaking aspects of the, fi uh, of the film. We cannot stress enough just how good Ellen Burstyn is in this film. And we cannot stress how good, is stress enough how good Aronofsky is just directing and editing his ass off in this movie. And, uh, the score, which we've talked about, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's, it's inventive, interesting filmmaking. This was, uh this was sort of at the high of the independent filmmaking um resurgence in the late 90s early 2000s and uh, uh you know it serves as as one of the pantheon of those films so uh yeah i'm actually just now revising it to 4.5 instead of 4 and uh for that reason i guess that means when i said that uh black swan was uh the same star rating as requiem for a dream i was lying Rex, black swan <laughs> is only four fuck black swan so uh not really i like it i like it quite a bit um so yeah uh recommend strong recommend 4.5 out of well if <laughs> i'm recommending the film if you've gotten to this far of the podcast and you're still deciding whether to watch it oops We've spoiled everything. Um, all right, go ahead, Ben. What do you think about the uh, the movie? No, you know what, Ben? I think you should. Oh, end. No. I was going to let you close, Shayra. No, no, I think we should. Ben, have you ever ended the show? Uh, on my episodes, maybe. Yeah, yeah right. Have you ever ended it on another person's? Oh, no. Okay. I think you should end somebody else's. Okay. I want you to be the poignant right. person. I, I, I'm excited about you being the poignant person. No no stress. Except for the it's fact happening. that I tried to close after you. Uh, uh, there was one podcast, because I listened to all the podcasts uh, a couple weeks ago. Oh, there was oh. One, there was You're one a of us. After you dropped the mic, and I was like, fuck, I can't stand <laughs> for this. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so you do a hell of a close, Shayra. Um, so whatever. Oh, whatever are you afraid I might do this to Ben? Ben, how about a decision? No. Do no, you no. want to be <laughs> drop the mic on, or do you want to drop the mic? I, I, uh, I would rather you drop the mic after I right. say my little meh comments. You go. you go. I appreciate your graciousness. Thank you, Shayra. Okay. All right. So closing thoughts on this film. Um, I honestly, like, I, it took a little while for me to get it, really. I think the first time through, I really did think it was, like, a PSA. Um, 
And for that reason, I didn't give it a, another look for a very long time. Yeah, the music was really good. Um, I think my my taste and my ability to appreciate good film though has changed over the years. And so like now, having watched it again, um, especially at the state that I am now, I, I really do appreciate it. And I think that's come through in a lot of my comments here. It speaks to things in, in my life that I think generate gen real, like genuine fear. Um, and maybe those things are probably different than, than Chera. Like maybe, maybe those fears are different. Maybe they overlap, but yeah, I mean, like I, I have ranted in this, I think enough to show that the, the existential bit is, is something that really kind of weighs a lot on my mind and anything that can so poignantly display the realities of kind of like the existential horror of just general existence is going to be a, an incredible film for me. Um, obviously like the technical aspects, yes, it was very, very good. I might knock off a couple points for the, the pacing, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, I think that like the buildup of this movie is really good. I felt like it kind of like built up very slowly and then things just kind of happen to the point at which it changes is when we see things really go to shit for Sarah. Um, it seems like she's handling things okay and then suddenly she starts to take more drugs and psychosis just like hits, right? Um, if that had been a little bit more subtle, that would have been good. But then again, uh, Aronofsky, he was trying to tell a bunch of different stories at once. And so I feel like whenever you're doing that, it's very difficult to get the pacing just right. On the other hand, I think it's also maybe a strength of the film because I think that's part of the point. There's no real resolution at the end. I mean, there are some things that happen and then there are some consequences for that. And then they're, they're, it's like, that's it. Like, it's just, okay, like things are, tomorrow is going to be another day. Things are shittier than they were. Um, okay, like <laughs> that's, that's pretty much it. And that really does speak to, I think, the existential horror that I find so, so palpable and so good about this movie. Um, Honestly, like I, I probably am going to rate this uh, like similarly to Jim, right? Like the more I think about it, the more it's got to be like a, a 4.5 dirty needles out of five. Um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 quite nice. It's quite nice. Like the more I think about it, this the more that I feel like it, it really kind of speaks genuinely to the things that I fear. And like, really, I, I see myself in this movie, you know, I, I don't want to go on and on about this, but there there's a lot i think i've sacrificed in the in the pursuit of what i what i have thought has been important to me and i'm not now like in my early 30s i'm not 100 percent sure about all of those decisions you know and i think that's something that all of us think especially like in in like the classical midlife crisis like we all come to a point where we reflect on our lives and like we realize okay it's kind of too late to go back now um all the decisions that i've made have led me here is this really what I think is important still, right? Um, and because I think that's a fear that I, I'm like currently still processing, I, th I think that's why that I, I enjoy this movie so much, right? So it's a, it's a fantastic selection. Um, yes, technically it's very good, but also because it, I think, reflects something that I genuinely am afraid of. So very nice, very nice, 4.5. I'm glad everybody liked, nobody's talked shit about this movie. This is a really highly rated movie so far. Like we have rated this shit really high. I'm it's and surprised. it's gonna only get higher because you guys all know that I always go higher than all of you. So <laughs> I always have to outdo everybody. It's just my way. But um, so you obviously know what the rating is. So that's besides the point. The, is it five? Just so that I can. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, obviously, but the, the, there's more to it than that. Uh, this is a movie that I first watched in 2000. Um, and this was when I was getting out of my Christian bubble. 
right? Um, and it was when I was finally getting exposed to things that are not all happy, tra-la-la, uh, because I, I was in one of those homes where you were stuck in the bubble of only Christian music and only Christian cartoons and only Christian TV shows and only this and that and the other. And then for some reason in, in my teenage years, my parents were okay with us watching Beavis and Butthead and some other, uh, you know, more risque type shows. But um, I was still in a bubble, very much in a bubble at 18. And when I saw this film, uh, I was still in my bubble in a way. So you have 18-year-old bub Bubble Shayra who watched this film, and then you have 36-year-old Shayra watched it today. And I will tell you, this film still hit me. Boom. Hit me hard. I've seen it a bunch of times, and it still hits me hard. I don't know how people can call this a, a movie that's not rewatchable, it, only in that they are unable to process the horror at the end. Um, I, I understand that that's hard to swallow, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have rewatchability. This film, every time I watch it, I see something new. Oh, they use that kind of lighting there, or oh my gosh, she said this. Oh my gosh, it connects to that. There's so much rewatchability to this. I, I highly suggest people rewatch this film because it is still speaking volumes 20 years later. And mind you, I watched this film and it was at a time where nobody had really seen it. And uh, I would talk to people and I'm like, oh yeah, one of my favorite movies, Requiem for a Dream. And people would say, I've never seen it. I've never even heard of it. So I'd be the person to introduce it to them, which is why I've seen it so many times. Not because I'm like, oh yeah, I got to see him get his arm amputated. <laughs> no, it's because I'm like, oh no, I really think this is a movie that you need to see. I'll watch it with you. And um, every time, you know, you know, when you have that thing you really like, and you sit down and someone watches it and you're like, you keep looking at them and you're like, you like it? You, you like it? It's, it's that for me. So that's what this film has always been. And at no point in time has it ever disappointed. And now I get to have my friend Noah watch it for the first time and, and hear his first insights on watching it. And it's 20 years later and it's still boom hits. I'm sorry. This is a, a fantastic film. It stands up to the test of time. 20 years later, still hitting that stands up to the test of time. So, uh, and the music, the lighting, the, the amazing film techniques that we do see a lot of people copy now, and maybe it seems dated because we see so many people copying it, but God damn, it's so good. It's good shit. It's great storytelling. Um, I, I do like the long takes. I'm a huge fan of a long take, but I'm a huge fan of someone who knows how to edit things into little snippets and, and tell a story that way too. I, I, I don't, I don't discriminate on, on the editing too much or editing too little. I, I like it both if it's done right, right? If someone knows what they're doing and if they have a science to it, fuck yeah, I'm all for it. So, um, and, and his copying of different things, fantastic shit too. I, honestly, I want to have his entire library under my belt. <laughs> like I do. I hope we get there. So um, maybe we'll do Black Swan somewhere down the line. I, I hope we do. Um, and talk about... Uh, Oh gosh, there's so much to talk about there, but it's there's similar parallels here. So I hope we reflect on the stuff we talked about here, take it over to Black Swan, and discuss the different editing techniques and and the idea of psychosis and psychological issues. And anyway, 
tied for the fifth highest in the history of the podcast. This is one of my favorite films, and I'm glad that everybody liked it. I really, I'm, I'm really happy. And it's, I just, I find it funny though because just before the show, Jim tells me that he did some science and math and uh, decided that I was the person who gives the highest ratings to all the movies we watch. <laughs> And then I'm like, well, I have to fucking give my movie that I love and that I've been wanting to talk about for two years <laughs> a high rating. I'm sorry. So, yeah, I'm just going to keep that uh, statistic up. It's fine. <laughs> so. Yeah, you've uh, you give an average rating of 4.09, which is the highest. Um, I like movies uh, a lot. 4.06 to 4.09. That just means we pick bomb ass fucking movies. That's I what like it means. your guys' picks. I do. I, I really mean, like what you guys choose. Even my rating is uh, even my average overall rating is three point four, which is pretty high for me. Um, I, feel like, I feel like this is going to start to change whenever we start just doing more new movies and more audience yep. picks. Yep. <laughs> yep. It will. Shit, but I know my. I like your guys' taste in in movies, but I don't know that I like new stuff or what others might choose i don't know it's it's going to change with martyrs it's going to change with martyrs that's my vibe that's my vibe well we have such a we have so many uh star ratings we have so much data set that you know you'd have to go on a run of two stars and one stars to really affect your average but uh yeah yeah we've we've got we've done a lot of we've talked a lot of movies on this podcast so uh and we will talk more next week Hell I think that's yeah. That's so cool though. Like, I don't know. I feel like this is one of those the longest relationships I've ever had on the internet. Like <laughs> practically married. Yeah. Relationships I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we've been doing this podcast for, get it I well over it's gotta have been almost two years, right? Almost yeah, two years, I think. It's yeah. over two years, yeah. Damn, we're old. Jesus. Uh well, uh, on that note, uh join us next week because we're gonna keep the shit going. Uh, we will be doing Jordan Peele's Us uh, next Sunday night. Are you wearing a red dress because you're feeling old right now? Hell yeah. I was going to do that anyway for no other reason. I was just in the mood for a red dress. Fuck. Totally. Uh, yeah, so we're going to be doing uh, Us. Uh, and right now, one, one, two, three, we have four hosts right now. We're going to add one more for Us just so I can look at the camera and say, I got five on it. That's the that's what I, that's why I want it. That was a terrible uh, joke. It was a terrible joke. Uh, terrible. Uh, Yes, thank you. Uh, so we're going to be doing Us next week, uh, 6 p.m. After that, uh, the week after that, so this is the 7th of April, we are doing Climax, which is uh, a French expose on Parisian orgasms. It's a great, great movie. Uh, and then we're doing Suspiria, 1977 versus 2018. We're doing Annihilation the week after that, and then we're doing Martyrs at the end of April. So uh, if you have any recommendations, feel free to put them in this chat or in the comments of this video, we have a separate section on our film list where highly rated or selected, just people who say the same film over and over again. Martyrs is a good example. It's been the one that um, almost everybody has said we need, we need to do. Um, so I put it on the list. So we're doing that next month. If there's anything else that you want us to do, let us know on our social media. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Pretty active on there, uh, trolling other, other, uh, other channels in a good way, in a horror-esque capacity. You know, so uh, check us out on our social media. Um, thanks for watching. Big shout out to Byron tonight, Luna, uh, Zonstar, Dan, uh, Lindsay Allen, normal people that are here every week. So thank you guys for joining and we'll see you next week for Jordan Peele's Us. Take it easy.